This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hi guys, this is the Not Quite Daily Show, Spring 2018, Episode 13. Today we are discussing the 24th and final episode of Darling in the Franks. This is the last page of our story. Now, owing to my suspension of the other two series in order to stay current on Darling, this is the first time I've had to deal with the final episode of a show. The end of a story is the only time you can see the whole thing, like backing up from a mosaic slowly but surely until the entire image clicks into place. The ending carries a gravitas in and of itself, as the satisfaction of completion and the melancholy of finality afflict an audience simultaneously. It is thus no accident that storytellers often save for this moment some poignant bit of characterization, or some final piece of thematic exploration, or some long-awaited emotional payoff. It's the last chance to influence how an audience reflects on the whole, and the last chance to argue for a place in the viewer's hearts and minds. I assure you that no storyteller takes it lightly. Too often, though, we in the audience reduce our experience down to simply, did we like it or not? Would I give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down? With how many stars should I rate my experience? If you come away from a work and all you ever have to say is whether it was good or bad or okay, then I think you were selling yourself short. Eventually, you will have seen every type of story, every type of subplot. The wellspring of novelty will run dry. But learning to dig further in, to try to grasp what the creators were doing and why, will give you a pastime that you can never exhaust. As you get older and see more stories, a time may come when you discover you like talking about stories as much as watching or reading them. And at a further point in time, you might like discussion even more. Now it's likely most of you talk about anime elsewhere on the internet. You wouldn't be here if you didn't find some value in hearing someone else's thoughts. Yet group discussion is a double-edged sword. On one hand, having an outside take on a series, episode, or scene can sometimes make connections that one has missed, or bring perspectives that one hasn't considered, or apply experiences that one hasn't had that are nevertheless relevant. By seeing opinions we disagree with being supported, we can challenge our own notions. Sometimes this changes our mind. Sometimes it helps us reaffirm why we feel as we do. Understanding where someone else is coming from with their take is one more step toward empathy with our fellows, something that I believe is part of storytelling's purpose in the first place. On the other hand, we are social creatures, and the weight of opinion can influence us even without support so long as there seems to be enough of a consensus. Sometimes this can lead us to reconsider a work that initially gave us a bad impression. Perhaps more frequently, this can erode the love we originally had for a work. We hesitate to like something that others find easy to deride. The social instincts that make us constantly readjust and reevaluate so that we are not left on the outside of society tend to work against us here. So I want you to remember this. There are no objective analyses. 
There is no right or wrong answer. This isn't math. It's not quantitative or verifiable. As I've said before, there is only having opinions and supporting opinions. There will, of course, be more popular interpretations. There will be stronger supporting arguments. There will be more convincing explanations. There is a shared vocabulary and agreed upon storytelling concepts, but that's all. So I urge you to believe in your original judgment, to believe that your feelings are valid, but also to never retreat from challenge. Never allow your initial impression to be the end of the conversation. Rather, learn how to support your opinion, learn how to take the things a story means to you, and show them to others. Like the humanity that produces it, storytelling is a shared experience. This means that what I am doing here is sharing my opinion, my analysis, and nothing about my impression is greater or lesser than someone else's. If there is any distinction at all, it is only in the degree to which I try to support these opinions. At the end of the day, I'm just a guy who talks about anime on the internet. Because of this, I'm not interested in telling you whether I like Darling in the Franks or not. I'm never going to score and rank these shows, or presume to tell you what to think about the whole. In general, my approach is not to ask of each scene, was this good or bad, or did I like this or not? The driving question is, why did the writers believe this was important? Why this scene, this choice of words, this theme? This moment against all the infinite other moments that do not happen instead. I may indeed indicate whether I like or dislike an aspect of a show, but it's not the goal. We aren't here to determine some numerical approximation of a series' worth. That doesn't mean that scoring has no value. Certainly, aggregates of critic and viewer opinions can suggest helpful trends. If you are interested in how to decide where you rate a show, my advice to you is not to think only about whether you liked it a little, or a lot, or not at all. Rather, I think a good judge of value is whether a work succeeded in what it set out to do. We shouldn't judge a slapstick comedy for failing to teach us deep truths about life, nor should we ding a historical drama for not making us laugh enough. And we definitely don't rely on whether we feel happy or sad at series end. Instead, we ask, did the creators accomplish their goals in the telling of the story? It probably won't surprise you that I think one of the most important things to examine in such a judgment is a show's treatment of theme. Were they clear? Did they support our understanding of character and narrative? Did our grasp of the themes evolve over the course of the work? Were they consistent? I say repeatedly that one of the best tools for speculation is theme. A good creator knows the importance of consistent theming, and so their narrative and characters will eventually serve the main themes in a way that is a little bit predictable. There was much consternation by me and others that the show had derailed after the introduction of Verm back in uh, episode 20, that perhaps the show had to jump to the shark and wasn't the same series anymore. To examine whether or not that is true, now that we can look back, um, I want to read you a comment I wrote when I was looking ahead at the series end. This is written after my analysis of the 19th episode in the comments for that video. The comment thread was discussing the possibility of the ending being emotionally satisfying, or bittersweet, or whether those were even different things. Remember, this was before we knew about Verm, or space, or the assimilation plot, or the purpose of Star Entity, or, or any of that. This is what I wrote verbatim. Well, if my speculation about mirror arcs is on target at all, 
we might have a situation where Hero and Zero Two do what is necessary to free humanity, possibly causing one or both of them to be separated or dead. But this would allow their mirror, Mitsuru and Kokoro, to fulfill Kokoro's wish of having a child, demonstrating to whoever is left, on either side, that a return to a more natural state is both possible and perhaps preferred. That gives us the satisfaction of seeing the wrong of their memory wipe and wedding disruption made right again, while also giving Hero and Zero Two the star role of enabling a new world to be reborn at all. Both couples contribute to restoring fertility in the way of nature in this situation, while keep it from being a perfectly happy ending. Truthfully, stories that end with everything being perfectly wrapped up are often interesting while they are ongoing, but become forgettable once they are complete. Evangelion and Cowboy Bebop are both downer endings, yet they are still relevant and talked about decades later. And this largely because they were thematically satisfying, even if they were not happy or relieving. I forget where I talked about this, somewhere around 13 or 14, I think, but it's that element of thematic satisfaction that resonates with us. Cowboy Bebop is largely about a group of people haunted by their pasts and unable in some fundamental ways to move on. If it was suddenly happy at the end, and everyone sorts their issues out and moves forward, well, that's so out of sync with the rest of the story that it is no longer thematically satisfying. It's actually the opposite. It disrupts our sense of what the story is about. Someone pointed out to me once that most great love stories are actually tragedies. It's the promise of love unfulfilled or met with an early end that affects us and gets into our psyche. We are left still wanting the characters to get together somehow. That lack of payoff leaves our brains still trying to want the story to work out, like how stopping in the middle of a song when you get out of your car will leave that song in your head for the rest of the day. To me, in Darling, the satisfaction will come from the themes coming to a head and being addressed decisively in a way that's consistent. All of the fertility and death and rebirth patterns have suggested almost from the beginning that there will be an overturning of the world's status quo. However, there is the death part of death and rebirth, which also suggests that something will be given up to achieve this. Spring may come, but winter comes first. So how do you think they fared? Was the importance of death and rebirth, change and transformation, and all that abandoned? Or was it internally consistent? Did the abrupt upheavals in the story after this point disenfranchise the thematic patterns we had up to here? Was anything sacrificed for the sake of ending a certain way? I can't answer that for you. But just like always, we're going to walk through this episode and try to understand what the creators wanted to say. It's a conversation between us and them, and then between me and you, and each of you with each other. Finally, I want to let you know that this is not my last Darling video. Um, there is a lot to unpack, and I think a few videos specifically focused on certain aspects of the show, uh, certain motifs or themes or character journeys might be good, um, but I don't know what or how many or even how long from now. Um, I would benefit from some distance and perspective on the whole show. This might be what I eventually do for all series that get the full spectrum analysis, using that as a jumping off point for more focused videos in the future. Um, I'm not certain, but darling for sure. All right then, let's do it.
Last time, I wondered what our finale would look like. I was certain we would see two resolutions. The end of the war segment with Hero and Zero Two, and a type of epilogue showing the squad rebuilding human civilization on Earth. But I was uncertain how much of our final episode would be dedicated to each part. As it turns out, we did not get any insight into Verm or their history. Because of this, the type of ideological showdown I thought possible was never going to happen. That much, at least, is still left to the audience to interpret and ponder on their own. Having made this decision, I am so glad the writers decided to spend the majority of our runtime with the events on Earth. Getting multiple time skips and following our squad through various key moments in the lives they built puts a lot of emphasis on the rebirth half of Death and Rebirth. Showing the progression as a series of small steps rather than a single leap forward gives the restoration of society an organic and natural and slow-growing feel. Weaving the shorter but still essential showdown with Hero and Zero Two into the story, rather than treating them as two stories, helps solidify the idea that death and rebirth and creation and destruction are not separate and opposing ideas, but complementary ones, which support and emphasize each other by contrast. Moving the death to be adjacent to a rapid increase in the restoration of society makes these themes incredibly visible and central to our work as a whole. All in all, the structure of this finale made me feel like a lot of my faith in the creators was warranted, despite the moments when I think they misstepped or made decisions I found inconsistent. But that's okay. No one should assume their opinion or interpretation of a story is the right one. Not even the creators. We aren't here to talk about the story that didn't happen, but the one that did. It starts by immediately letting us know that the trip beyond the gate does not turn into the final showdown right away. This is consistent with their pattern I have pointed out before, of never relaxing the tension of a previous cliffhanger right away. The density of the stars behind them indicate that they are somewhere very different in the universe than Earth, either at the densely packed center of our galaxy or some other more concentrated region of space. The imagery and word choice here from Zero Two should leave little doubt as to she and Hero's union being a type of wedding. This is the first of many instances this episode in which more subtle metaphors are made less subtle and more obvious to the audience. Most anime is essentially young adult fiction, which means that while characters and narratives are often complex and rich, themes and morals are often more direct and easily digested. And it's a hard balance. For the people who likely make up my viewership at this point, most of this stuff does not need to be pointed out, and it takes up space that could have been used for other purposes. Some may even feel their intelligence insulted to have the creators point things out that we have gleaned ourselves. On the flip side of that, a sizable amount of people who wrote the series off or have been enraged by certain choices feel that way precisely because so many elements were subtle enough to escape their notice or their understanding. This is a trade-off that every creator has to make. Anyway, Hero's transformation has been less dramatic than Zero Two's, but is still notable, progressing further than when we saw him on the other side of the gate. They discuss his own lack of feeling tired or hungry, suggesting that his physical humanity continues to recede as he becomes more and more like the male Klaxosapiens of old, who bound their souls to the cockpits of their weapons. He is not nearly as connected as she is, which will have plot significance later on, but we are meant to understand that, even now, he is progressively becoming more like her. Speaking of her connection, I'm surprised at how many people are surprised at Zero Two's transformation. 
Having her mind linked to Strelizia so fully was something we already understood, and we knew it was a more robust connection than the normal piloting situation. We had taken note already at how the pistols of our squad resembled their Franks in some ways, and that all of them, including Strelizia, took on the facial expressions and movements of their pistol uh, while they're connected. When the princess connected instead of Zero Two, it even changed color scheme and facial markings to reflect this. It seems we are to infer that some of the visual representation of the Franks flowed from the pistols themselves. Once she and Hero were fully committed to piloting Star Entity together, it was clear on both sides that it was a more substantial connection than we'd seen before. Visually representing this greater connection by having Strelizia reflect its pistol pilot even more closely is a consistent progression. Hero got to appear as the prince he drew in the landscape of her mind, after all. Why shouldn't she get to appear somewhat as the bride that she drew? Even in the absence of these clues, physical transformation as visual shorthand is something so common in anime that not changing would have been disruptive to audience expectations. Sorry, slight detour there. Um, I guess true Strelizia, looking like Zero Two crossed with a Gundam, just activates some people's weirdness sensor, uh, regardless of whether or not it makes sense in the story. I at least am glad they chose this route for a few reasons, not least of which is that it gives us far better emoting from Zero Two for our finale. At this point, and through most of the episode, she exudes a calm acceptance of their situation, a confidence and satisfaction with the state of things. This is consistent with what we talked about last time with her completing her character arc. She should be as serene as she's been at any point in the show, and her demeanor through most of this episode reflects this change. We close this opening scene out by having Verum ships appear to intercept them. From the dialogue of More Enemies, combined with the 70 Days Since Gate Passage title, we gather quickly that they have fought Verm before, and will continue to fight them, and that this entire mission of theirs is going to play out over many months at the least. It is 72 days since the Gate Passage back on Earth. By advancing our day counter a bit before changing scenes, we are able to understand that the two stories are going to advance separately, but alongside one another. Until the climax, Every change in location implies a change in time as well. Kokoro's pregnancy proceeds normally, and she is just beginning to show. She has attracted a few girls from other squads who flit about her. As shocking as things have been through Squad 13's eyes, I'm sure it's been even more disruptive for the surviving squads, who have had to catch up on things like childbirth and love and individuality and all that in a really short period of time. Without the active interference of their former society, I'm sure some suppressed instincts are rising back to the surface and will continue to do so. These girls' obvious interest is such a tiny detail, but communicates to us that Kokoro's situation is going to influence others as well. This is then reinforced by the change in Fake Nana. Kokoro tries to insist she not receive special treatment, but Fake Nana contends that special treatment is exactly what is required. As the first pregnancy, she'll be a pioneer and an example. Setting a precedent for the importance of childbirth to their new society is critical. Having Fake Nana be the one to say these things helps underscore the changes taking place in the survivors. Where before she was unwilling to do anything because she was supposed to wait for orders from Papa, now she has taken up a new purpose of seeing this fledgling society do things the right way. The plan to use Mistletine soil to help restore fertility to the land gets underway next. And just as they lead the way in all things for this new world, our Squad 13 leads the way in uncovering and revealing their former home. 
They notice that the plants seem to be growing now even though they were dying before, which seems like a confirmation of our idea of the land reflecting the fertility of its rulers. Now that ape is gone and the parasites rule, their own fertility is reflected in the land again, even if it's just this tiny corner. The idea of Mistletine as fulfilling the same role as the mythological role of Mistletoe is also backed up by the following exchange, where Miku wonders if maybe Mistletine kept all of this safe for them, and Goro's agreement that they can make a fresh start. That's pretty much exactly the idea of Mistletoe holding a tree's vitality in itself through winter, allowing the tree to start again with the rebirth of spring. Zero Two's drawing of the bird remains on a freestanding portion of the wall, their fate in the present and their role as symbol loom over our squad and this nascent society. Next, we have four scenes meant to reflect one another. A short montage of another attempt to plant crops using the Mistletine soil, the remaining squad caretakers discussing administrative tasks, Ichigo helping Ikuno set up an office, and then back to Kokoro and her advancing pregnancy. The bookend scenes, Crops and Kokoro, both represent biological fertility, the restoration of life, nature. The middle scenes, organizational efforts and Ikuno's beginning research, represent the restoration of the abstract aspects of a society, in this case, its administration and its knowledge. Artifice. Just like baby plants and baby humans, the fabricated aspects of their society are also in their infancy and will need input and effort to grow and expand. We see that Kokoro's audience of interested girls has grown quite a bit, and she seems to be sharing a small lesson on sewing. Although there is practicality in Kokoro changing into new clothing to accommodate her changing body, we should understand that, symbolically, changing out of her parasite uniform represents transformation away from the old role and old society and into their new one. Her creating more clothing and sharing how to do so with the others is advancing this idea. Just as surely as Zero Two's physical transformation reflects other changes about her, Kokoro's change in wardrobe indicates a metamorphosis of herself and her place in their understanding of civilization. Just like Zero Two, she is serene and at peace throughout this episode, having accepted her purpose and herself. Mitsuru is attempting to sort out his own role as he shows up trying to see if there is anything he can do for her. His uncertainty mixed with eagerness is pretty endearing, I think. Nothing has quite prepared any of them to know what the heck you are supposed to do as spouse and future father. He is just as much a pioneer in this as she is. Now that doesn't stop Miku from shooting him and the other guys, the stink eye, throughout this whole scene. What do they think they're doing, interrupting girl time? That said, Having Fatoshi and Zorome both competing to try to contribute to Kokoro's well-being is a humorous way of showing us that the girls are not the only ones impacted by the importance of Kokoro's pregnancy. Next, Ichigo and Goro contemplate Hero and Zero Two's situation against a backdrop of departing Klaxosaur ships. In retrospect, I'm unsure why more ships are leaving Earth at this point. We know they can't get through the gate, and they don't end up settling somewhere else. Maybe there are some stray verm elements around? Or else they are setting up some defensive perimeter in case of failure? Well, it's never explained. Anyway, Ichigo and Goto's conversation help remind us that despite their efforts to build a new home, the pain of being separated still weighs on them. Ichigo feels a type of helplessness at being unable to do anything for them, but Goto suggests that they focus on what they can do in the here and now. They have their task, and Hero and Zero Two have theirs. Each must do the work that is in front of them. This probably seems like really obvious advice, 
but specialized roles are not something they ever had to deal with in their previous life. And yet, specialization is one of the foundations of civilization. Creating a situation in which not everyone has to spend their time gathering food or raising children or defending against danger allows for things like doctors, educators, researchers, artists. Their previous homogenous existence is somewhat anathema to a growing civilization. Differentiation and individuality turned out to be part of what all of them must put into practice for their rebirth to take hold. As to what Task Hero and Zero Two are doing, they are counting stars? They are in an area of space so far from Earth that Hero doesn't recognize any of the stars or constellations, and so Zero Two suggests they make their own. They have entered the unknown, basically, but if we think of them as representing human knowledge, or perhaps also the idea of storytelling, then creating new patterns in the sky, in absence of the ones you know, seems like an extension of their thematic role. However, they do not get to actually complete this task, as they are interrupted by more Vern ships. Zero Two is not worried. She says they have all the time in the world. That said, we never do get to see if they begin to create new constellations, new patterns, or not. I originally wondered if they would actually cause the sky to become altered in some way that was visible back on Earth. After all, the Apus in Strelesia Apus is a reference to the Bird of Paradise constellation. We'll talk about this later, but Hero and Zero Two eventually represent a set of mythical heroes to the new human society. Actually having a constellation associated with them would reinforce this idea, especially considering how many constellations are themselves taken from human stories, like the example of Orion the Hunter from earlier in the series. Well, new constellations can wait, but new humans can't. We swap back to Earth in time for Kokoro's delivery, with Mitsuru somehow the last to arrive. The guys wait outside and urge him onward, and when he opens the door, he first sees a lot of girls crying. I'm sure his heart skipped a beat there, and mine did too, but everything is fine. The first birth any of them have ever seen or heard of was undoubtedly an experience way too emotional to be handled with dry eyes. And Mitsuru is no better prepared to deal with the event himself, speechless at the sight of his child. I appreciate the links they went to in order to ensure this first birth gets its prominence in the series. There's a reason it's the only thing I was positive would happen. Never mind the sheer weight of theme that the birth of a child in this world represents. In universe, this is a complete overturning of everything about their previous lives. Their lack of autonomy, the suppression of their natural instincts, the manufactured ignorance of all forms of love, even the idea of lives as disposable rather than being something worth fostering and protecting. In spite of everything they have been doing already, all the planting and building, planning and researching, Ichigo still calls this the first step in the future we chose. Outside the delivery room, Fatoshi is the first one to embrace and congratulate Mitsuru. Despite his own tumultuous past with the two of them, from the wedding onward, he's been their biggest cheerleader and advocate. Recognizing Mitsuru as the first father, Papa number one, is not just declaring him a model for all the other guys. He's supplanting the ape council head, Papa, with Mitsuru instead. Papa, from now on, will mean something else entirely. From birth to rebirth, as they next wake all the children who have been disappeared and add them to their ranks. It's actually pretty smart to not have done this right away, waiting until they got their infrastructure and food supplies on the way to recovery before adding more drain on the system. As we can see, these aren't just parasite washouts that are nearly the same age as our squad. 
Some are the much younger children who were taken throughout their stay in Garden. These younger children are not going to be able to contribute in the same way as the adolescents, and all of them have quite a bit of catching up to do. This results in a reunion with Naomi, who bears the evidence of her accident in the form of a missing arm. Humanity's starting population is all together now, and they can all march toward the future as one. Ichigo narrates over a small montage of images showing this progression. Success with the crops, organizing the areas immediately around Bird's Nest, this adorable picture of Mitsuru watching their child, the other guys scavenging the Franks for parts, Nana and fake Nana comforting the younger children, and Naomi looking after Ikuno, who is embroiled in her research. Ichigo's words sum these varied tasks up nicely, saying that they take each step slowly but surely, making sure they each find their own path to walk. Goto's path will take him away from them, it seems, as we see him preparing to explore the world, looking for resources or remaining children. Ikuno points out that they will all miss him, but Ichigo especially. Is she okay with this? And she is. It's a very Goto way to live. Again, the importance of self-determination has been internalized by our squad, even when it leads to some sorrow in the short term. It's a time for bold choices and bold decisions and, well, boldness. Goto isn't going to leave anything to regret this time. Everyone is shocked, though Ikuno recovers pretty quickly. Just as she knew how Ichigo felt about Hiro from observing her, I'm sure she also knew how Goto felt. Before leaving, Goto says he'll look for something Ikuno asks for. I am not sure what is actually meant here, though. Do you have uh, any thoughts? Uh, maybe just all the medical texts that she seems to accumulate over time? Anyway, Ichigo continues her narration through this part, as we transition into winter, and she speaks about the cycle of meetings and partings, and how they are gradually growing into adults. Their thoughts still stray to Hiro and Zero Two at times, and we see Ichigo discover the picture book and the fact that it is unfinished. They continue to fight in space, a long and seemingly endless battle. But then, we reach the two-year mark after their departure through the gate, and the final showdown looms. The years have had an impact on Hiro and Zero Two. She is looking battle-worn and frayed, while Hiro has a rare occasion of falling asleep. It seems he may be getting weak. He had dreamed of their friends back home, a dream of the pleasant lives they seem to be making for themselves. It's a momentary bit of satisfaction for each of them, this new life that they helped win for their friends, and also a reminder of what's at stake as they finally arrive at their destination, Verm's home planet. Again, the details of the combat itself are kind of immaterial, and there's also no chance of some ideological debate swaying either side at this point. The only reason this becomes a crisis is because Verm somehow brushes Hero's surface consciousness and causes him to fall asleep or into a coma or something. This creates a situation in which Hero and Zero Two need the help of the squad back on Earth to help her reach Hero again and re-knit their bonds. Now, I suppose we shouldn't be surprised that the people who were instrumental in creating Zero Two from scratch and controlled nearly every part of Hero's upbringing and inspected an altered star entity would actually be prepared to catch them off guard. The vulnerability they appear to attack is the difference between them. She is a pure crystallization of Klaxosaur, and he is still part human. Verm sees individuality and distinction as weakness, and this difference is just the thing they have spent millions of years trying to eradicate. I proposed last time that we might have a type of ideological debate in our finale. This scene and the subsequent involvement of the parasites back on Earth is about the closest thing we get. 
It's actually a similar scenario to the beginning of Episode 6, when the monolithic and highly coordinated Squad 26's fighting prowess was compared head-to-head -head with the individualistic and unscripted fighting style of Squad 13. The 26ers excel as long as the threat is understood, while our 13ers misstep or get in each other's way owing to eight different sets of thought processes and priorities. However, when Target Beta presents an unexpected challenge, the 26th squad has no way to adapt. They have no experience making their own decisions or inventing strategy on the fly. Instead, it's the chaotic but individualistic 13th squad that is able to scrape up an impromptu plan to fight back. And when the plan doesn't work perfectly the first time, they can modify it to try again, eventually resulting in success. As the squad grows in experience with themselves and with each other, their various differences in equipment and temperament begin to be integrated and complemented by the other members, and this eventually leads to their increased prowess compared to other squads. These events alone suggested to us that the series presented the idea that several differentiated parts working together could be stronger than a group of homogenous parts. Our last showdown with Verm presents the last argument in this debate. Now, I'm not sure how long this battle with Verm is going on. Long enough for them to stand out here all day, and night, and some days afterward, apparently, and calling Goto back from wherever he was. We aren't really given a good sense of time scale for any of the battles. Regardless, Verm is right that wherever there is difference, there is potentially a weakness, potentially some point of conflict. Our own squad has embodied this quite well. And as we look back, we can see how many times their individual wills and desires caused them to come into contest with one another. There were the love triangle heartbreaks, the boys versus girls fight, the disruption from the early Zero Two, uh, heroes suicidal ways, uh, the changing opinions of Papa and their roles in society, and so on. Um, their growing ability to self-determine inevitably produces points of weakness. Being allowed to remain different from each other will always beget some disagreement or stress eventually. It is just this vulnerability that Verm seeks to eradicate from the universe. While they are technically attacking the difference in physiology between Hero and Zero Two that makes him less compatible with this two-year voyage, we should see this as more of an ideological assault on the fact that they are not exactly the same. Thus, the solution is to present the idea of these differences as a strength rather than a weakness, and that is where the squad back on Earth comes into it. Once we learn her name, it becomes fitting that I is the one who hears the call to action from Zero Two. Uh, more on that in a sec. Kokoro and Mitsuru realize what might be going on because of I knowing the word darling and its association with Zero Two. We also see that calling Kokoro by her name continues to cause Mitsuru pain, though he continues to do so anyway. However, just as she calls him Papa, she urges him to call her Mama instead. During the gathering of the squad, we have a brief scene with Naomi discovering the mirror that was hers before. Naomi says that she is sure she can only stand here now because of this mirror, that she should be grateful. The actual mirror itself is not literally why she can stand here, of course, but what it represents, the relationship between Hero and Zero Two. It went through a lot just as their relationship did, cracking, shattering, hastily taped together, and then restored to something almost whole, almost faultless. This imperfection makes them human, but also makes them vulnerable, something this whole scene helps to underscore. Because vulnerability is not the only thing their differences create. All those discrepancies and imperfections and distinctions can also be turned into a type of strength, 
Just as the 13ers eventually turned their various combat tendencies into teamwork, the differentiated roles they have taken in their new society have resulted in an adaptable and versatile team intent on building a home from the ashes that Verm left behind. They were prepared to improvise and problem solve when no one else was. And now, despite being different, they are nevertheless united, and this multi-day event yelling at the sky underscores this unity. They aren't just shouting encouragement and sharing their thoughts and feelings as best they know how, they are justifying this entire idea of individualism and self-determination and social bonds. The things that Verm sought to deny them are now their source of strength. At this point, I think we can extend our very first metaphor, the Jinn bird. At the very start, Zero Two described them as imperfect, incomplete creatures. And leaning on each other doesn't suddenly make them perfect. But when they do lean on one another, they can fly as far and as high as they want. This interdependence is a hallmark of a couple. By giving up some of their self-determination and choosing the same path as someone else, they can actually fly rather than being earthbound. Zero Two found this situation beautiful, perhaps even ideal, while the hero still under Ape's influence found it troubling. Obviously, he came around, and so we've ended thus. They are imperfect and incomplete. There are cracks in them, just like the mirror. But that's not the point. The point is that each can shore up the weaknesses of the other. This only actually works if they remain different, remain able to be strong wherever the other is weak. This is similar to the idea we've discussed of red and blue together, but not becoming purple. Yes, it's a way of describing a couple, but we can now look at it and the Jin analogy as describing the type of society they are building. They're not a bunch of completely isolated and homogenous adults seeking some notion of individualized perfection. Rather, they're a vast group of independent souls who lean on each other and support each other, account for the weaknesses in each other with their unique strengths. One of them can, say, focus on medical research because someone else is planting crops, someone else cooks food, someone else builds and teaches and makes clothing and organizes others, explores the world. Individually, they might be imperfect and incomplete, but each taking the hand of each, collectively leaning where they are weak and supporting where they are strong, they become something greater than the sum of their parts. The lines of particular note here unsurprisingly belong to Hero and Zero Two's mirrors. Since the power of names theme has been a constant throughout this work, we knew that there would be significance to whatever Mitsuru and Kokoro decided to name their child. I like that they choose this as the thing they want to say to them, particularly that they named their child and liken it to the way that Hero named all of them. As we've discussed, naming was part of Hero's humanizing power, and enshrining this as tradition by naming the first child ensures that this humanizing act carries into the future for their new society. The name is I, love. As Kokoro says, it's the word they were never taught. What's more, Mitsuru learned the word by doing what Hiro used to do. He discovered it reading an old book. He explains that it means having a deep bond like the two of them, and they want their child to inherit that bond. This is not just about their child either. Mitsuru and Kokoro's daughter is going to be a figure in the history of this new world, the first child. Naming her with a word that the previous society intentionally hid is a defiance for the ages. They are elevating this concept in importance for all time, in stark contrast to Verm's attempt to smother and hide it. Just as the squad joined together like this is presenting their different but united world against the homogenous one of Verm, 
Making the concept of love and its bonds a conspicuous part of the new human society is a blatant rejection of Verm's ideology and influence. Thus, it is no accident this is the word on Hero's mind when he recovers from his coma-like state. Zero Two can reach him again now, as he still drifts away. We should recognize this pose of his from the new opening, and its theme of separation is being invoked at this moment in order to be overturned. Hero is having his own moment of regret and doubt, seeing how his own desires and attempts to follow his ideals often cause problems for others. We see his conflicts with Sodome, with Mitsuru, with Goro, the terrible ordeal of the wedding, the psychological distress Zero Two went through in the middle of our story. But throughout it, Zero Two is arguing for his decisions, that his passion and desire affected and inspired her, that it led to her understanding and loving of humanity and of him. I've talked a bit now about differences between individuals and the shoring up of weaknesses with others' strengths. This is central to the idea of a couple and the type of specialist civilization the squad is attempting to found. Looking back now, we can see that this has been just the pattern between Hero and Zero Two. She was strong when he was weak, assertive when he was hesitant, and he was also calming when she was distressed, accepting when she felt rejected, humanizing when she felt anything but human. Each of them goes through trouble multiple times, sometimes internal, sometimes external, but always one of them comes after the other. So even as Ver makes one final assault on a hero, stirring up the pain and conflict he himself helped cause, Zero Two is there to overcome, to recast his actions the way she saw them. Momentary anguish gave way to something positive, something greater than the occasional negative outcomes. For, truly, despite the many times they were driven apart or came into disagreement, neither would have traded what they have just to have avoided those low points. Wanting to love each other and be one in spite of it is the ultimate answer to Verm's philosophy. So it is that they regain their power. Kringhorny is converted back to its original state by their touch and becomes a weapon for them rather than against them. As they fly toward their goal and the fate they chose, there are two things being said. The first is Zero Two shouting about how she was blessed and happy to meet them all, and how glad she is to have been born into the world, even though she is going to her end. Considering that Verm here are the very ones who arranged her creation for their own goals, the fact that she is still glad for existing carries a little extra weight. That she is also choosing a fate different than the one they had forced on her is further defiance of their attempts to control. And, finally, that she can rush to her own death and not regret living in the first place is still another rebuttal to Verm's emphasis on escaping the natural cycle. Staring death down and being glad of it? Not ruining the path that led her here? Or being born into such a world? That is quite the ideological middle finger. The second thing said is she and Hiro having another exchange of saying that they love one another. Unlike the episode 15 union though, when they use the word ski, or rather daiski, this time they use the far more potent word aishtru. For us in English, it is translated as I love you either way, but the connotation is somewhat different in Japanese. Again, I preface this by saying that my understanding of Japanese is pretty minuscule, and we are dealing in broad strokes only. But while you might use ski or daiski for someone you crush on, but also for your favorite food, you aren't going to use aishitsuru quite so interchangeably. This is different from English, where I can non-ironically say that I love pizza, or I love this scene, 
and then turn around and tell my partner that I love them. Daisuke can fulfill those same roles in Japanese, but Aishituru is pretty much only for romantic partners, and I get the feeling it is more serious than when a couple first tells each other they love each other in English. That's something that might happen relatively early in a relationship, while Aishituru is serious business, and is likely expressed very seldom. I have heard that as long as you don't watch dramas, you could walk around Japan for a month and never hear anyone use the word. So from that, we should understand that this is a much more serious exchange of feelings between these two in their last moments. Additionally, this might be the first time they even knew this stronger word to use. Um, I'm not 100% on this, but it seems like Mitsuru's information about I and what it means was new information to Hiro and Zero Two. Giving them a stronger way to express themselves then becomes one more thing the squad is able to do for them right at the end. They seem to be stopped short of activating the bomb, and inside the cockpit we can see Hiro even more advanced as a Klaxo Sapien, having gained even the sharp canines. He's also glowing with light, which we said before seems to indicate strong emotions. They collapse and retract into a glowing version of Strelizia and try again to make it to the bomb. Their form changes again into a bird before reaching their destination. I don't doubt part of this scene is meant as homage to Gurren Lagann. I'm sure if you look back through this series, you'll discover homages to lots of other anime. Much like the sharing of knowledge in human civilization, anime itself builds upon and acknowledges the influence of the works that come before. There is a bit of a timeless moment here before the detonation where Hero and Zero Two get to share their last thoughts. They are represented as fully red and blue Klaxo Sapiens this time, keeping our red and blue color theming right to the end, with the flying djinn between them as a symbol of their unity, still distinct, yet unified all the same. They know that it's goodbye. Yet Hero says something here very relevant to their role in the new society. He says that the path they've walked won't ever fade because the others will take it even further. Owing to their influence, their example, and their final sacrifice, Hero and Zero Two end up becoming something like legend to the humanity that they leave behind. This will get a callback later on as well. Zero Two then says that it doesn't matter how long it takes. If they have souls, then she swears she'll meet him again on Earth. Thus, within the moment of their death, she swears that they will pursue their own rebirth. Finally, a last exchange of love with the new word they have for it. They call each other by the name that each bestowed on the other. Though I have made much of Hero's naming of Zero Two, we shouldn't forget that Zero Two also named him Darling. She never refers to him any other way. Both of these names came from that first excursion they took in their youth, when their paths changed forever and humanity's with them. The bomb goes off and severs the purple world of Verm back into distinct red and blue souls. I think we know what that means by now. They appear to spread out, and Verm's words suggest that they are all returning to their original worlds, perhaps to be reborn into new bodies. Verm still thinks of this as being caged in their bodies, of subjecting themselves to the shackles of pain and sorrow. They would trade all of the good experiences in existence for the sake of eliminating the bad. Now that the souls have had ample time to experience Verm's idea of paradise though, it seems most, or even all of them, believe it's worth the risk. Now Verm says something interesting here at the end of the scene. They state that Verm will not die. 
that they will face off again at the apex of evolution so long as this universe contains a flicker of life. I feel like this implies Verm was never a civilization in their own right to begin with, but rather are representative of some essential force. Could it be that they are a personification of entropy or something similar? I do not have time to really explore this idea fully, so I would be interested in others' take. I will say that life itself is in something of an endless battle with entropy, taking in and absorbing energy in order to fight off the natural tendency towards chaos. And each of us eventually loses. Amid the souls spiraling out in every direction, we see Hero and Zero Two holding each other's hands and spinning together into the void. Despite the circumstance, they are happy, joyous, each looking at the other as though nothing else existed in the universe. It seems even to the end, even beyond the end, they have made good on these words. Grab on to me, darling, and never let me go. Those on Earth are able to see and understand what the explosion in the sky means, and understand what the sacrifice has bought them. Ichigo has particularly heartbreaking thoughts, telling them simply to take as long as they want, but make sure you both come back. They will keep their home up and running so they can return any time. After her death, Zero Two's statue breaks apart, revealing a plant growing in its place. We will eventually see that this is a cherry tree, pinked topped like Zero Two herself. I know I didn't talk about this last time, but I made a comment on the video about a possible way this world works that may be relevant now. I suggested that perhaps Klaxosapien's memory might be different than human memory, that it might be more physical or tangible in nature, and that they might be able to understand or remember things based on contact or consumption. They might store information in a similar way to how our chromosomes store information, physically encoded and inheritable. I thought this might be why Zero Two ate the picture book and was then able to recall it perfectly. It might be why tasting her blood helps the memories come back. It might also explain why she tastes people and then seems to understand something about them, which is a behavior we also observe when the princess tastes Dr. Franks. Once she is connected to Star Entity, she seems to understand where to go and why, and once Hero is also connected, he seems to also understand its mission. Hero also had some of her blood in him, after all, giving him perhaps a less potent version of this power. This might explain Ichigo seeing his memories when they connect, something that we never see happen between any other connection. This might also be why Hero and Zero Two were able to recover their memories when no one else did. Nothing confirms any of this for us, but I bring it up because if it's true, then it suggests that statue holds some kind of Zero Two's memories. Uh, possibly even heroes, owing to the closeness of their connection at the end. If so, it suggests that the tree which springs from it might hold some pieces of those memories as well. This matters not at all for the plot, but might change the texture of that final scene just a bit. In the meantime, the squad gets to see the remaining Klaxosaurs return to Earth. Maybe they really were just anticipating further conflict, and now feel their long vigil is at an end. Joining back to the ground appears to restore some fertility to the world, as though they, too, were holding the power of life and trust and have decided it is safe to give it back. We time skip eight years and get an understanding of Earth's progress, that they decided to stop the use of magma energy and find something more self-sustaining, despite the hardships it caused them. Each of the squad takes turns with this narration, emphasizing the shared nature of their efforts and ideals. We see their building of infrastructure, 
We see nature overtaking many of the structures and symbols of the old society. We see research progressing. And of course, the explosion of baby fever we predicted that Kokoro's child might touch off. And they gradually made everything they needed to live. At this point, and only at this point, it seems they decided it was time to finish the picture book. The rationale Ichigo gives us is that they did it so that those two would forever be as one, and so that future generations would know about them. Like I said, this enshrines their story as part of the lore of this new world. There's a lot of overlap here with the role I posited for Hero and Zero Two in the show before last, um, and so we are going to revisit this final page when we get to theme. There is an interlude with Nana and Hachi on the hill beside the tree, where they discuss their role in the new society. It seems they do not age, making them neither adults nor children. They are distinct from the civilization that the former parasites are building for themselves. Hachi posits that they must watch over and reach out to humanity's future, which Nana apparently finds rather dry. But Hachi says it's because he doesn't have emotions. Luckily, she is here for that. Then he wonders, in his permanently flat inflection, if he could change too if only she were to stay by his side forever. I suppose that is about as close as Hachi can get to expressing desire, huh? As he's led off by some of the children, though, Nana states that he has changed, just like her, just like them all. In fact, they will all continue to change. Transformation, remember, is the side of the tension that our squad chose to represent. Seasons change, people change, their society changes with them. No one can swim in the same river water twice. Apparently, the scene they were overlooking was the beginning of the school year, perhaps the very first such opening ceremony. We can see the extent to which they have changed and cultivated the grounds around Bird's Nest, and it is expectedly lush and yet maintained. Nature and artifice together, as it were. Squad 13's Franks appear to be arranged around the compound as though in positions of honor. This is different from the other Franks we saw that were dismantled or allowed to be reclaimed by nature. Seems they are emphasizing the individualized nature of these particular Franks, giving that concept a place of importance in their new society and in contrast to the homogenous conformity of the old Franks. Other than Nana and Hachi, in fact, it seems even the old clothing styles have been discarded in favor of new ones. Cherry trees are ubiquitous, it seems, and they have carried on the tradition of associating a new school year with cherry blossom season. We see our first family with their little ones, with a daughter conspicuously reading the Beast and the Prince story, something I think we can assume went into mass production in order to be shared with everyone. Zorume and Miku have taken on the role of educators, apparently, but they have not discarded their contentious relationship. Although there is no clear indication that these two are together or have children or anything like that, they do seem to be wearing identical necklaces. I guess they will leave it reasonably ambiguous for us. They don't leave Ichigo and Goro ambiguous, though. It appears that Ikuno's actions back during the activation of Star Entity have left her aging far more rapidly than the rest, leaving her bedridden at this point in the story. It doesn't stop her from performing the medical role she seems to have shouldered, and she listens to the heartbeat of Ichigo's child. From the dialogue, we see that this is Ichigo's first child, and that Goro is the father. I like that there is a reasonable delay here. Ichigo probably had some time to work through the loss of Hiro, both in love and in life. I find it realistic she might take longer than the rest to want to look for something again. Goto's own boldness, followed by his exploration, probably helped us along. 
Not having him around likely helped her realize that she missed him when he was gone. She's never stopped wearing his hairpin, after all. Futoshi arrives, admits the discussion, and we learn that he has taken on the role of a baker in their society. His latest creation seems to be a stylized version of the bird symbol, which, like the picture book, reminds us of the cultural impact that Hero and Zero Two's story has on the new world. In addition to having a job putting buns in the oven, he apparently wasted no time in, um, having his own buns in the oven, currently expecting his third child. Our first family is apparently expecting their fourth, though. It seems the repopulation of Earth is well underway. Now, it might seem like once again associating Fatoshi with food is taking the same bit of fat guy likes food and stretching it even to the end. But I think Ukuno's words here give it another context. She says that his bread's really special. All the kids here grow up eating it. Fatoshi nurtures the next generation just as surely as the planting of the crops, or the researching of medicine, or the education of the children. He has turned his weakness into strength. Ikuno has done the same thing. All the scenes of her toiling in that room and poring over research are revealed to be her efforts to halt the rapid aging of the parasites. Her own dilemma at being the one most affected has galvanized her to stop the unnatural advance of their years. It's not perfect, obviously. The squad should be in their 20s or so at this point, yet Fatoshi and Miku both have gray streaks. But it was enough to keep the whole thing from collapsing. It also confirms something we wondered way back in episode 19, about whether they had engineered the parasites to age faster. It made sense, after all, since they needed fertile pilots immediately and didn't really care about the long-term effects. Anyway, we see Goto arrive back from his explorations, as promised, and then the seven of our members that can get out of bed are shown standing under the great tree, looking skyward in the same way that Zero Two's statue once did. We see Ikuno and Naomi briefly during this final narration as well, and as kind of offhandedly suggested last time, it seems they are a couple of their own. This last bit seems as though our remaining squad is talking to Hero and Zero Two and gathering together for this purpose. It may be this is something they continued doing after that first time that they linked hands and yelled at the sky, their own little ritual for remembrance. And it's also a ritual for thanks. Ichigo says that they're all living strong with their own lives, and that you two are the ones who showed us how to. As they go down the line and take turns narrating, each shares a line about the things they believe about living, attributing them to the example that Hero and Zero Two provided. At the end, Ichigo says that in that sense, she knows that they were more human than anybody else. Thus it seems we have an answer to that central question, what is human to you people? There is finally a bit of epilogue as we watch the tree through the ensuing years. Each year its petals come and go, just as the lives of the people come and go. A city grows behind the tree, becomes more vast, becomes more futuristic, and the people that come to see the tree for a while change in style as well. Our squad no doubt grows old and passes on during this epilogue, and perhaps their children also. And still, the tree and what it symbolizes carries forward still natural and fertile and lush against the backdrop of artifice and progress behind it. We then get to witness what appear to be Hero and Zero Two's souls finally returning after the long voyage home, still red and blue and yet still never quite letting go. What follows is the very last moment of our series, and so I am going to forestall it. It will be the very last thing we talk about in this video. So no goals or conflicts at this point, since nothing follows. 
Our final change to goals and conflicts from last time both involve the end of the war, and so both are resolved. Kokoro meets her goal of having a baby, and the squad fully realizes this idea of life beyond piloting, taking all of humanity with them. Verm is thwarted in their own goals, though still existing means that, theoretically, they never are quite eliminated as a threat either. The conflict of squad elements also gets resolved, thanks to Ikuno's efforts during the ensuing ten years. Their occasional illness and child fever and all that appear now to be nothing more than normal sicknesses that all kids go through, made weird and extraordinary to the adults only because they had eradicated such things from their sterile world. The only thing potentially unresolved or questionable was Hero and Zero Two's shared goal of seeing the outside world. It may be that seeing extensive parts of the universe counts at least a little bit here, their honeymoon, so to speak. But depending on how you want to interpret the final scene, it may be that this is a goal that their souls are still pursuing even beyond the scope of the series. Anyway, to theme. As I mentioned in the opening, I intend to eventually make additional videos from this series, uh, shorter and more focused in scope. Now that we have the entire work to look at, a lot of themes become more clear, and it's possible new ones will suggest themselves to us. But this is going to take some time. More time than I can reasonably expect to delay this video, which has entailed plenty of work on its own. What that means is that we are not going to take our dominant themes and go back through the entire work. That is enough content to make another video just as long as this one. Instead, I am going to discuss elements from this episode only, and how they added to or altered things that we've been talking about lately. First up is something that is just a possibility, and I guess it most neatly fits into theme. I want to entertain the possibility that our final episode title is an external reference. Never Let Me Go is also the name of a dystopian novel published by a man named Kazuo Ishiguro. He's probably most famous for The Remains of the Day. He writes in English and is a UK citizen, but as you might can guess from his name, he is Japanese by birth. Despite its English origin, Never Let Me Go was adapted into Japanese for a 2014 stage play and a 2016 television drama. Looking at the promotional material for this drama, we can see the title is represented the same way as our episode title, including writing Watashi with hiragana instead of with kanji. Anyway, the reason I think it might be a possible external reference is that Never Let Me Go is about children who are cloned and grow up in boarding houses sequestered away from others in society. Their eventual fate is to donate their organs and die young, a sacrifice to enable the rest of humanity to live longer lives. The story focuses on the residents of one boarding house in particular, which is experimental because the residents are treated more like humans than the other children marked for donation. Like our parasites, they do not show the same alarm about their situation that the audience does. When they actually learn the truth, several of them are relatively accepting of this fate of dying for the sake of others, and they have no real self-determination or autonomy over their own bodies. Especially relevant is the title, which in universe comes from a song of the same name. The narrator and one other key character have different interpretations of what the song means. One believes it is about a woman who cannot have a baby, while the other associates it with the sorrow of the clones not being able to live long and happy lives as humans usually do, thanks to the way the world has changed. Those both seem pretty relevant to our series, no? Especially this last episode. Hero and Zero Two vow to never let each other go, 
a callback to the words between the characters in the picture book. But they do not get to have children, and they do not get to live long and happy lives. Like the novel, the use of the phrase for a title seems ironic, considering the main character's fate. And yet, the path they blazed actually overturns both of those situations for the squad they leave behind. Normally, yes, the parasites do not have children and do not live long. But even though they started the story in a dystopia, they do not end in one. Thanks to their own efforts, childbearing returns to the world. They also find a way to extend their lives to something like normal. In the world Hero and Zero Two help create, Never Let Me Go is suddenly something one can say in earnest, rather than only in hope. Next, I thought we would briefly revisit the Red Oni, Blue Oni story. I don't feel like this story or its theme ended up applying to Darling and the Franks. Yeah, Hero and Zero Two are definitely red and blue with horns at the end, but the folktale is about the Blue Oni sacrificing friendship with the Red Oni so that the Red Oni can befriend human children. You could potentially argue that the Klaxosaur princess could take the Blue Oni place in the story, sacrificing her place as the control of Star Entity in order for Zero Two to be with humans. But they had no pre-existing relationship. Zero Two doesn't lose her friendship in exchange for human friendship. The moral or theme of the story doesn't align with the closest parallel in our series, so I don't think it ends up being applicable after all. I know we talked about that already, but since the episodes since we last mentioned it haven't given us any more relevance, um, I figured we would touch on it one last time. So let's talk a little bit about mistletoe and its relevance. Like last time, we got to see the way the soil of Mistletine helped restore fertile earth back to the land, tying into ancient beliefs about the restorative power of the mistletoe plant. It definitely played out the way we expected. There's also the association with Hero and Zero Two as mistletoe. I mentioned Naomi's mirror in the walkthrough already. Remember, it has the mistletoe design on its back, making it doubly symbolic of their relationship. Something I want to expand on in regards to the mirror itself is that it's cracked. Even at the end, Hero and Zero Two's relationship was not perfect, not without any weakness or defects. This is something we touched on in episode 22 with the difficulty they experienced with freedom, and again when we talked about how love relationships in the series caused as much heartache as they did joy. But basically, something the series has done consistently is avoid presenting concepts like freedom or love in black and white, purely a choice between only good outcomes and only bad outcomes. Instead, the choices were full of hard consequence. This episode has the further example of them giving up magma energy and struggling because of it. Hero and Zero Two's relationship had many hurdles and moments of stepping backward, and was even almost shattered. Even at the end, their bond is not so perfect that it can't have a setback like Hero's coma. Attempting something as bold as loving someone carries risk. There's the chance of a bad end. But even cracked, that mirror still functions just fine. Imperfections are just the byproduct of a changing universe, changing people, the evolutionary and sometimes chaotic progression of life. Verm would snuff out heartbreak and fear and sorrow, despite meaning that they would also snuff out affection and freedom and joy. The cracks in the glass are the price of having the mirror at all. They'd rather have it the way it is than have thrown it away when things were tough. Speaking of Verm and Mistletoe, what was the ultimate point of Hringhorny? Trying to use life as a tool against life? I feel like it was immaterial to the narrative. Remove it completely and the story can still proceed the same way. 
Maybe it's just so that there were Klaxo sapien souls held captive just like there were human souls captive? I think it's more likely, or at least as likely, that it's purely thematic or symbolic. We spoke before that it directly invokes the Balder myth and its own association with mistletoe. Hringhorn is Balder's ship, and Balder seems to be unkillable, yet he is brought low by a weapon made of mistletoe. Verm becomes Balder in this parallel, brought low by Hero in Zero Two. Perhaps just like Balder, the danger was in overlooking something as seemingly innocuous as mistletoe, or perhaps as seemingly powerless as love. Regardless of why, the death of Balder leads first to Ragnarok, but ultimately to a rebirth of the world and a repopulation from the few surviving humans. Uh, briefly, individualism versus collectivism. Uh, we really went over this in the walkthrough when I spoke about the squad support of Hero and Zero Two during the Final Crisis and how it mirrored the situation back in Episode 6. Like a lot of the versus themes, this isn't so much about having one extreme in conflict with the other, so much as that characters or a society will find themselves somewhere along a spectrum between these two points. So when our new humanity is working together toward building their society, likely sharing resources and living space and authority, then that is an aspect of theirs that is on the collectivism side of the spectrum. However, being able to choose their own path having specialties and differences that match their own desires and all that is an aspect on the individualism side. The point, I think, of this confrontation with Verm is highlighting how they are building a society in a completely different part of the spectrum from the one Verm has built, and yet they are on the way to succeeding all the same. Since they are the ones left standing at the end, the series itself could be seen as promoting their take on the individualism versus collectivism spectrum over the one that Verm chose. A similar thing is at work in Nature vs. Artifice, where the new humanity sits along the spectrum, but in a different place than the plantation society before it. I mentioned already how well that final shot of the grounds helped illustrate this idea, along with the overtaking of plantations and other franks by plant life. The return of fertility to both mankind and the plants especially tells us that the new world is much closer to the nature side of things than the one before it. Even into the future at the end, we see the cherry tree remain despite the ongoing advancement and expansion in the background, and generations of people still come to spend time underneath it. So Power of Names we actually touched on a lot already, uh, Mitsuru being given the Papa name and Kokoro taking on the Mama name over her own underlines their identity as the first family. There's also Zero Two and her darling saying each other's names as part of their final moments. Just like the Papa and Mama example with their mirror, these are names that they gave one another. And then the obvious significance of naming the first child I, forever elevating the importance of love to the new society, separating it so dramatically from the society Ape had built. There is one more instance of this theme at play, but it will have to wait until we visit our final scene at the end. Speaking of I, I recently shared my thoughts on what the hidden 15th star of Orion could be. This goes back to the conversation between Hiro and Ichigo at the end of the beach episode just before she tries to confess. I said then that it's possible the stars are a count of our main players. The ten members of Squad 13, Nana and Hachi, Dr. Franks, and then perhaps the Klaxosaur Princess. Altogether, these are the 14 people who contributed the most to the way the narrative played out. Or rather, these 14 are the reason the story Verm wanted to happen didn't go as planned. 
You could perhaps argue that Naomi should be in there instead of the princess, but with the princess, everyone sorts into pairs that make sense as long as we put her with Dr. Franks. Anyway, part of their conversation about the star is that it's hard to see with the naked eye, but that they had made a promise to look for it after they got out of Garden. I propose that the 15th star in this case could potentially represent Kokoro and Mitsuru's child. Not only is the child something they've never seen, childbirth itself is something mythical and unknown to them. Now that they've gone and named the child after the concept of love itself, we have that added subtext to the exchange. Love was indeed something hard to see, impossible for them as they were. It's something they do indeed search for together once they get out of Garden. In fact, that search directs a lot of the drama of our series. And in that very conversation, Ichigo is trying to tell Hiro that she loves him, without either of them really quite understanding what it means, and she fails to do so. It is still unseen. It's still something they are going to have to look for. It's the word they were never taught. Yet, by the time I is born and they discover the word, love has become something they all do understand and recognize. It's become important to them. It's no longer the hidden star. Next, I want to talk about the big comprehensive theme we introduced two episodes ago, the idea of transformation versus stasis. This idea complements and can contain a lot of the other thematic patterns of our series, and I think is central to answering the question of what it means to be human. Our squad and the ideals they eventually embrace put them on the side of transformation, with Verm on the side of stasis. Transformation especially contains a lot of our ideas within it. Death and rebirth is contained in it, as is the closely related theme of fertility. Creation and destruction are on this side as well, as both are anathema to stasis. There are elements of nature versus artifice, of course, as nature is in a constant state of change, something most easily demonstrated by the cycle of the seasons and the life cycle of all living things. Because of that, our flower and mistletoe symbols fit neatly into this idea as well. The show's use of sexuality was always closely aligned to its themes of fertility, with the obvious result of them being able to repopulate Earth at all. But sexuality and romance and love were all pressures on our squad that caused them to chafe at the order that Verm would have preferred to enforce. Sexuality thus has a dual role as an agent of change in our squad, putting it squarely alongside this comprehensive transformation pattern. Hero and Zero Two actually give us a parallel to each of their respective series and the way they succumbed to Verm's principle of stasis. The Klaxo Sapiens resisted Verm, ideologically and militarily. They bent their will to do this so much that they eventually surrendered everything that made them a people, their individuality, their self-determination, their wills and intelligence. They built their entire society into a weapon for revenge, and in doing so actually succumbed to stasis. They became immortal but infertile, unchanging and in wait for 60 million years. Human society also succumbed to stasis not by organizing themselves around conflict, but by avoiding it, trying to banish all change, all death, and all personal connections that could bring strife to their lives. Clack society bit themselves too far to war, humanity too far to peace. Both ended up in stasis just the same. Our story begins with Hero and Zero Two each personifying some of these tendencies themselves. Zero Two is violent and warlike starting out, and in times of stress collapses into something especially confrontational. Hero starting out was too passive, 
too easy to be pulled along and accepting of his fate. What changes for each of them is the influence of the other. Hera regains his confidence and his contrarian spirit, slowly returning to the youth who could defy and question authority. Zira too, for her part, slowly relaxes her violence and aggression, slowly gains a sense of empathy and community. Each grows to be more like the other. To mark this transformation, each of them also physically becomes more like the other species. That transformative pattern continues all the way up to the very end. There is never a point where they stop changing, never a point where stasis wins over them, even if they do have the occasional setback. It would seem then that neither extreme is the answer to the smothering bliss that Verm exalts. Rather, it takes some compromise in the middle, some constant change, as Hero and Zero Two discover during their pursuit of one another. Thus do they become the early champions of this transformation ideal, and eventually pass it to their squad, and then the rest of humanity. Speaking of which, when I first introduced this idea of transformation versus stasis, I further suggested that our two couples each embodied part of this transformative concept that humanity needed in order to rebuild, in order for civilization to be reborn and continue. Just as in that opening comment I read to you, the couples mirror each other in many ways, but ultimately take on different roles in the narrative. This allows them to fulfill different parts of our thematic patterns as well, yet always while recalling and complementing the other pair. Hero and Zero Two embody the idea of memory and knowledge, especially the idea of passing it forward. Uh, we will come back to that. Kokoro and Mitsuru, then, are standard bearers for the other principle, fertility. This, too, requires a passing forward to the future, but in a biological sense rather than a cerebral one. Civilization requires both the increase and replenishment of both people and their shared understanding of the world. Now, Mitsuru and Kokoro fulfill their duty this episode in a few ways. The obvious is having the first child, I, and they prove their worth as first family with the choice of such an auspicious name. Not only does this serve as precedent for future pregnancies, as fake Nana suggests, it's also completely transformative to the way the parasites think of themselves. Remember Kokoro's original conversation when she revealed her desire to have a baby? She spoke with hope and a desire to leave something for the future. This is part of what having a child meant to her. As we can tell from the Parasite's later discussion, this entire concept of leaving something for the future, of thinking of their future at all, was a foreign one. It was only the previous episode that Hiro has suggested they consider a life beyond piloting at all. Well. I think we can expect that most of the other squads were also unfamiliar with the idea of thinking about the future, of planning ahead and hoping after tomorrow. The birth of a child to one of their own was probably one of the single most radical shifts of perspective in their entire lives, and as we can tell from the later scenes, the impact rippled outward with immediate effect. It was, well, transformative. The two of them together also take over that role of Rain King that we originally thought might go to Hero. Remember, some of the mythology references suggested that the infertility of the world was a reflection of its rulers. Ape Council were like the priest kings of antiquity, and the world's fruitfulness was bound up with their own. As they were both barren and even unnatural, the land itself reflected their barren and alien qualities. Metaphorically, the only way to restore the land was to cast down the priest kings and erect new and fertile ones in their place. Hero and Zero Two end up fulfilling another role, but they do cast down the priest kings, 
and their human mirrors take on this duty in their place. As I mentioned, Mitsuru assuming the name Papa and Kokoro Mama is no coincidence. These two especially, but really all of the remaining Squad 13, are the new priest kings of the world. Once the old ones are defeated by Hero and Zero Two's actions, fertility returns to the land with startling speed. Now, in the same scene where the parasites discussed Kokoro's revelation about wanting a baby, Zero Two informs us that this is something her body can't do. Hero and Zero Two were never going to be able to be the standard bearers for fertility, even if their love was the inspirational spark. Instead, they represent knowledge and memory, and especially the way it is shared and grown, changed and passed on. This transformation and transmission of understanding is what turns humans into societies and civilizations at all. To more fully explore this role of theirs, let's have one last thematic discussion. On some level, Darling in the Franks is a story about stories. This lends double significance to the Golden Bow reference. That work is all about the importance of stories as keystones to civilization, exploring how widespread and similar are the mythologies of many otherwise different cultures. Story and ritual form a shared worldview that unites humans across time and distance. We associated Hero and Zero Two with this idea in our series because of their own relationship to books. Hero reads voraciously in Garden, which gives him ideas such as naming the others and licking Zero Two's wounds. But what it does most for him is inspire him to question the world they found themselves in. This starts him down his path. Zero Two, of course, had the picture book, her first pretty thing. Not only does her struggle to preserve it first get Hero's attention, the tale itself would come to reflect their own story together. Before it does, though, it first inspires her to try to become a human. Like Hero, the book starts her down her own path. This principle they both help represent is attacked directly by Verm in the form of the memory wipe, which threatens to alter their paths and keep each of them subject to the fate that Verm prescribes. Recovering their memories mid-story is the key event that allows the eventual defeat of Verm and the restoration of human society. That is, regaining their knowledge and memories and stories are what make them who they are while also defying the control that Verm would assert. The final evolution of this idea for them is something I hinted at already. Owing to their key role in the battle with Verm, as well as their influence on the squad, Hero and Zero Two become something like mythical figures for the new human society. They become the heroes of a founding story. It's actually partially because they die in the process that they can pass directly into legend. Their cultural significance unites and binds the new humanity, which they sit and preside over like a giant tree on a hill. We see the way symbols associated with them are shared in the new civilization. The bird symbol Zero Two scrawled for the wedding celebration becomes the design in Fatoshi's bread, and the markings on graves, and the design on the children's scarves, and a symbol still used in jewelry all the way in the epilogue at the end. Likewise with the prominent cherry tree on the spot where Zero Two last smiled at the sky, a place that appears to remain sacred and cherished far into the future. And then, of course, the picture book. Having the squad be the ones who actually draw the last page completes the idea of knowledge and stories being important because they are passed on. Zero Two creating everything except that last page gives the momentum necessary to finish it, yet requires the action of the others to actually complete. The telling of the story becomes a shared experience. 
It wasn't enough that Hero and Zero Two liked and were affected by books and stories. It mattered because they passed the value of this action on to others, who then pursued knowledge outside their understanding in contrast to how they were before. Thus they learned to cook from books, thus Kokoro learns about babies, and the squad learns about crops and engineering and medical research and all of that. And after they complete the book, they spread it to others. As Ichigo says, so future generations would know about them. Let's look at that last page now. Hero and Zero Two get represented as flying off together instead of separating as in the original. They fly leaning on each other like the Jin, with a red-white and blue-black color scheme to differentiate them. Though they fly into space alone, they are kept company for a time by four other pairs of birds. These are the rest of the squad, color-coded just like their Frank's uniforms. Green for Mitsuru and Kokoro, pink for Miku and Zorome, purple for Ikuno and Fatoshi, and blue for Ichigo and Goro. And though they do fly into space, we can see a pair of shooting stars as well, one red and one blue, destined to eventually return to Earth. I'll have one more thing to say about stories at the very end related to this book's significance. Before that, though, let's talk about our last main section, something new, the character journeys. Now, there is no what to watch for or speculation this time. Speculation makes sense, of course. And though I said we would revisit what to watch for, it turns out that most of what wasn't answered ended up being completely unimportant anyway. You never quite know what's going to matter in the middle of a story, you know? This video will be long enough without them, and I don't think anything of value will be lost. Instead, for our finale, I wanted to do something different. I wanted to chart the individual character journeys for our characters now that we can see the whole. Maybe I will always do this for finales. I don't think I'll usually have so much work to do, as I count 13 characters in our story that change in our understanding from beginning to end. Hero and Zero Two will get a slightly different treatment from the rest, uh, which I'll explain when we get there. We will begin with our non-squad members first. Nana arrives in our story alongside Zero Two, and so in the beginning is one of the ways we learn more about Zero Two than the squad themselves know. Though she seems emotive and nurturing with the squad, early moments with Zero Two show us that she has a stern and unyielding side as well. Despite her personality contrast with Hachi, she is just as strict about enforcing order and obeying protocol. Her sense of purpose comes from outside, and her duty as caretaker is what drives her. We could be led to believe that her occasional softer tone with the parasites is part of this duty, uh, rather than some kind of legitimate thing that she feels. However, she shows moments here and there of empathy that go beyond her duty. She makes sure Hiro knows how dangerous and hopeless it'll be to try to pilot with Zero Two when they first try to take her back. She worries about Hiro's third piloting in private conversation with Hachi, and is distressed when he appears to die. Though she expresses relief that most of the squad is okay during the episode that Goto is trapped, she is all business about the possible necessity of letting Goto die in the ensuing mission. When Mitsuru appears in danger of washing out, it is Nana who has the idea for the partner shuffle, which ultimately saves him despite the unrest it causes for a time. Repeatedly then, there appears to be some tension between her enforcement of her orders and a tendency to worry over the children and want to help them. The exception is her relationship to Zero Two, in which she never seems to pull her punches. We will eventually learn that Nana was more emotional than was desired in her youth, and subsequently had her memories altered. This might be why she seems to be left out of the Doctor's inner trust at times, 
as unlike Hachi, she is frequently mystified at his orders and direction. Yet, despite what they did to her, it appears her natural tendency to form emotional bonds with her charges continued to crop up from time to time. This causes a conflict in her mind between her default personality and the purpose that she has adopted. Once she spends a month watching the children get to live their lives free of the control that she herself exists under, the contradiction starts to take its toll. I feel like it is probably especially galling to watch Zero Two get to experience a kind of romantic holiday with her darling. Thus, when Kokoro confronts her about the parasites still having emotions, her own possession of emotions and their incompatibility with her role creates the breaking point, something which makes her unable to continue with the purpose that she has structured her identity around. She can't simply will herself to be emotionless, it seems, and so bereft of meaning, she collapses inward, even to the point of physical handicap. Dr. Franks rescues her through Hachi, though, giving her a new purpose that does not defy her emotional nature, but actually relies on it. She is hesitant and uncertain at first, with no idea how she's supposed to fulfill this new role. But once she has to choose between continuing as she is and something new, she is able to discard her old contradictions and embrace a new meaning for her life. That is the last moment we ever see her uncertain, and even well into the future, we understand that she has continued to be emotional support for the children as they try to rebuild humanity. But she didn't just influence the children. I think she helped Hachi change over time as well, and so we will talk about him next. Hachi takes much longer to deviate from his starting characterization. He is stoic and emotionlessly compliant with his role. He doesn't press Hero about turning down the permission to stay at Plantation 13, even though he knows it's extraordinary, nor does he even seem to notice the parasite's reactions to the first connection that we see. There are occasional moments where he shows a reaction at all, like when Hero comes back to life, but he generally just accepts the situation as it is. While Nana sometimes questioned or tried to understand why orders existed, such as the surveillance order during the beach episode, or the order to go to the beach at all, or the prohibition from intervening in their puberty, and so on, Hachi never questions. He just accepts that there must be a good reason and goes with it. When it looks like Mitsuru is about to wash out, he is matter-of-fact about the risk of him becoming a pruning target. What we never get is any backstory on why his loyalty ultimately puts Dr. Franks over the Ape Council. He's still the same compliant Hachi either way, but he doesn't question deferring to Dr. Franks' directives, which would logically contradict the Council's wishes. This ultimately works out in his favor, but it doesn't seem to make much of a difference in his characterization. What does make a difference appears to be Nana. Her own breakdown seems to touch off several moments where he seems uncertain. Where before obedience was its own purpose, never questioned, Nana's departure changes this. He is content in not having emotions, and I guess recognized that she still displayed her own. When Squad 13 immediately goes through trials and Nana is no longer there, he becomes aware that his emotionless state makes him less able to fulfill the role of caretaker. Thus does he argue with Nine Alpha when they show up to crash the wedding. Thus does he rush to the site of the arrest, even if he doesn't know what to do. This will lead to him speaking to Nana in her cell as they fly to Bird's Nest. He wants to know what he could have said to the children. This is the moment that he remembers Nana in their youth, when her emotions were not yet so constrained, and she openly grieved the loss of her partner. I think Hachi makes the connection that in their grieving state, the parasites would benefit from someone who understood that grief, someone who had emotions of their own. 
and he knows it isn't him. What's more, he knows at the end of that episode that Ape has done to two of his charges the same thing they did to Nana in her past. He seems to harden at this realization. He will return to his obedient and stoic state for a time, though his primary loyalty to Dr. Franks does not change. In fact, I suspect this whole incident would have made him even more likely to choose him over the Ape Council. There are moments during the crisis with Star Entity and the Princess and Verm where he actually seems to show concern for the Doctor's well-being. Perhaps it's no surprise then that he's the only non-parasite who can function after Verm leaves Earth. His loyalty to Dr. Franks and his final message keeps him going, thus fetching Nana, thus finding the missing children, and thus doing all he can to aid the squad in their rebuilding. However, he still thinks that only Nana with her emotions is really able to take care of them. I think this is part of why he tells Nana to leave him after he is injured in the attack on the mothership. He doesn't think of himself as a caretaker, more like a facilitator. That relative helplessness he felt during the wedding crisis gave him some insecurity about what he now saw as his purpose. Now that he's secured Nana for the children, his role is complete, right? This ends up being one of the many, many instances in the series of one character saving another by refusing to let them give up. Nana supports him and keeps him alive. He doesn't appear to question his role again. We see him actively aiding the rebuilding, even going with Goto at times to help in his explorations and communication with other groups. When we time skip 10 years into the future and Nana wonders about what else they can do, Hachi doesn't hesitate. They have one duty to reach out to humanity's future and continue to watch over it. In fact, the rest of this exchange helps sum up their characters and relationships succinctly. She accuses him of still being so unyielding, and he reminds her that he has no emotions. But that's why she is here. And then, something like a wish and a confession together from Hachi. If you stay by my side forever, would I also be able to change? Our transformation theme suggests that yes, yes you can. And Nana confirms for us that even though Hachi doesn't seem to have noticed, he already has changed. After all, if little children know your name and want to play with you, I'm guessing you're not so devoid of emotions as you think you are. Nana and Hachi together are but one example of pairs in the series who characterize each other and are especially likely to be present during a key change in the other character's journey. Despite these two being the least human of the 13 characters we're discussing, they both still manage to change, to express empathy, to question the authority placed over them, and eventually to help save each other. So Dr. Franks is someone we've spoken about a lot during episodes 19 and 22, um, so we aren't going to try to go over every bit of his journey. He was an enigma of a character for a long time, for although he's had so many markers of a classic amoral mad scientist, we could tell that Squad 13's unique situation was at least partially due to his own efforts. As we discover that they are freer and more human-like than other squads, we naturally begin to associate this deviation with some humanizing impulse from the Doctor himself. And yet, when we get to the whole episode flashback of episode 13, he becomes something of a monster, torturing the helpless Zero Two while seeming only to delight in the novelty of the experimental results. But we also see him intervene to keep Hero from being altered or discouraged in his behavior. When it ends with him being the one who takes their memories, and is therefore the instigator of the terrible situation Hero and Zero Two find themselves in mid-story, it's hard to know what to think of the guy. Is he their ally or not? He does the dirty work of Ape, yet hides things from them. 
He prods Hero in a way that results in him rushing to Zero Two's side, yet he himself seems to have a different idea of her than Hero does. When we discover Dr. Franks is the one allowing Squad 13 to live in freedom after Grand Crevasse, we begin to think maybe the one in the past isn't the real one after all. And yet, when we get to episode 19 and see his past and what seems to drive him, we almost have to start over with our understanding. For even though he seemed completely inhuman at several points, the him in the present at the very end seems to be cheering for Hero and Zero Two to overcome their fate, and he challenges Hero and the others to see if they can become real humans. What is the deal with this guy? Well, we have gone over this, and now with the full story for context, I think we have the right of it. The Dr. Franks who can experiment on Zero Two, as we saw, is not the same Dr. Franks we see during their final conversation. This latter one shows remorse, expects to be hated. As he gets to see his work of works and its glory just before death, we had concluded that the show meant for us to have treated him as fulfilling a redemption arc. What does that whole arc look like then? From his backstory, we can assume that Dr. Franks largely had trouble with people. He had no scruples and was misanthropic in his dealings with others. And though he seems unable to return Karina's feelings in a normal way, we know from a few conversations that he is not some emotionless automaton. Rather, like many others in our story, he flounders whenever he does not have some guiding purpose. The appearance of Klaxosaurs gave him the first hint of a new direction, as it led to his own appointment over the Franks project. However, this project directly causes Karina's death, and while he might not respond as many of us might, it appears to turn him further inward. As he says himself, he was looking for somewhere he belonged, a resting place for his heart. He will find this purpose when he meets the princess. She is both a Klaxosaur and a beauty, and he believes she may be an expression of the perfected life form he had become obsessed with finding. He is infatuated with her from the first moment. Years later, her clone would have the same effect on Hero. Twice. In pursuit of this purpose, I think he gets even further from his humanity. It appears many attempts to clone the princess fail, and there is much spending of experimental life. Despite this goal of his, he is still in charge of the Franks program, including the raising and treatment of the parasites. Their terrible situation is at least partially to be laid at his feet, and he has no qualms about the dehumanizing and conformist directives from Ape. At the very bottom of this journey away from humanity, Zero Two becomes his success story. He's completely unperturbed at the damage they do to her, and she was treated so inhumanely, no one had even bothered to teach her how to speak. What happens next is conjecture on my part, but it still makes sense to me. I think Hero and Zero Two's escape is the turning point in the Doctor's life. What exactly affects him, I'm unsure. The brazenness with which they defy apes' control of the world? The fact that a human and Klaxosapiens can become affectionate, something that he himself is hoping for with the princess? The fact that she starts speaking as a result of her time with Hero? I don't know. But in a series full of stories having an impact on the direction of characters' lives, I think Hero and Zero Two's story impacting the Doctor would fit in neatly. Whatever the exact reason, all of the differences that make up Squad 13's situation come after that point, and it seems they were chosen because it is where Hero ends up. They have custom Franks, which are individualized and matched to the pistols, which would have needed his involvement long before Hero actually arrives at 13. He brings Nana to be their guardian at the same time he shows up with Zero Two, 
which we know from the opening is the beginning of their time as a squad. He knows about Nana's situation from her youth, and probably specifically chose someone more emotionally present than all the other caretakers that we see. Perhaps he also knows that Hachi knew her and tried to rescue her once, and pairs them on purpose. Then we see that Hiro has special permission to stay at Squad 13 despite washing out, a courtesy that is not extended to Naomi. Considering the timing, this seems to be specifically because Dr. Franks is bringing Zero Two to him. Since Naomi ends up in the frozen storage with the other children, we know that Dr. Franks is already keeping those disappeared preserved before the events of Episode 1. That facility is already in existence. And then, of course, the fact that Zero Two and Dr. Franks are on good terms, despite the original way we saw him treat her. All of this says to me that he was already changing in his focus before the events of that first episode. His treatment of Zero Two changed completely, and he got involved in setting up different protocols for Squad 13. Interestingly, he knows what drives Zero Two, and he knows that Hero is the darling she is looking for, and yet he never tells her. Maybe this is because he only knows she wants to be human? Maybe it's because she doesn't recognize Hero, and so he knows her memories are incomplete. But perhaps more likely, he wants to see if they grow toward each other once again. I think this is one part scientific curiosity, one part human curiosity. Regardless of why, he is invested in the outcome. He lingers around Plantation 13, showing up during the dangerous Target Beta fight. He arranges for their beach trip, and seems to be doing research nearby in Episode 8. During the Grand Crevasse battle, he goes to the fight itself, and chooses the front row seat of Plantation 13, which might have been a low-key way of making sure they weren't sacrificed like the others. In other words, he's more than a little bit invested in Hero and Zero Two. Yes, Zero Two is his creation, but she's not part of Squad 13 when he goes to their plantation in the Grand Crevasse battle. He is there in person when Hero and Zero Two are made official. And the words he speaks about defying fate and becoming real humans are spoken to Hero, not to her. Yes, he's driven by his desire to one day meet the princess again, and hopefully pilot Star Entity with her. He attempted to turn himself Klaxo Sapiens to accomplish this very thing. But he has that purpose during the flashback too, when he seemed his most monstrous. Obviously, something changed to lead him to do all the things we just talked about. I think watching over the two of them, even if from a distance, became something of a second purpose for him. When he is rejected by the princess, then, he doesn't collapse like everyone else who loses their purpose. Instead, he ends up sacrificing his arm and eventually his life in order to help Zero Two get to Hero. Even though he had stated he'd lost interest in the future of humanity during his flashback, we later find out that he had squirreled away a host of children who could help restart mankind. What's more, he ensured that they would be found in case of his death, and even arranged for Nana and Hachi to look after them. That is a changed man, I believe. And so, in the moment of his death, when he is exuberant over Sterlesia Apus breaking free, it may be that he is not just rejoicing in seeing his work of works complete. He may also be rejoicing in the long and diverging path of Hero and Zero Two, taking its biggest step towards converging together again. So, to talk about our 10 members of Squad 13. It's hard to characterize so many people, and some will get greater screen time and focus than others. Hero and Zero Two are obviously the main focus, and so we'll deal with them last. Among the other eight, characterizations did not proceed at the same pace for all. 
Some got filled in early but tapered off. Others seemed to be completely neglected until far into the story. And there was never any attempt to give them all equal prominence. However, there were a lot of things we can tell were done at a macro level, and a lot of characterization occurs in pairs, with two characters playing off of each other. For example, these eight squad members all have a way that they deal with their insecurities or personal strife. The abusive circumstances of their upbringing led to all of them having coping mechanisms. If we look at the original partnerships, we'll see that each pair has the same means of coping with their vulnerability. Miku and Zorame are both hyper-confrontational and aggressive. Kokoro and Fatoshi both avoid confrontation and compensate by being nice and trying to never cause problems. Ikuno and Mitsuru both maintain a facade of cool indifference, staying distant from the others and even somewhat looking down on them. And Ichigo and Goto retreat into responsibility and preserving order. They hide behind decorum and protocol. Over time, though, each of these partners goes through different things and has different character moments. They separate in their identity a bit from their original partner, even to the extreme case of changing up the partnerships altogether. The result is that by the end, we have eight different people who we mostly understand. We will start with Miku. I had an interesting discussion in the comments about her once. While we are observing that Fitoshi and Ikuno appeared to be getting short shrift on characterization early on, a commenter pointed out that Miku hadn't gotten any more focus than those two. And yet, no one complained about her lack of characterization, so what gives? Well. This is an example where tropes work in the creator's favor. Trope is not inherently or pejorative. It just means a pattern that an audience recognizes and can expect. Anyone familiar with anime can quickly guess that she fits into the Tsundere archetype, and by doing so, we already understand the basics of how she will react and interact. We don't need a half dozen scenes of her alternating between confrontational and cozy, because one or two will clue us in along with visual tsundere symbols like the uh, twin tails. Once we have that basic framework of a character, they can then add small details on top of that here and there to make her feel more unique. Like her early comments about Zero-Two not being human because of horns, or making a face at her use of honey, or being petulant about Ichigo being the leader and then later competitive with her, or her reassurance to Zorome after he got her hurt, or her running and barricading herself in the old 13ers room during the boys versus girls fight, or even all her enthusiasm over how romantic the wedding sounded. None of that is specifically part of that character package, and perhaps all by themselves, these moments don't fully add up to a character. But adding all of them to the archetype, they make her seem more like a rounded version of that pattern. She also gets some characterization by association from Zorame, as the two of them frequently demonstrate similar temperaments and priorities. There are things like both of them trusting Papa and society explicitly, both of them being competitive with the others, both of them being just a moment away from crying, and so on. In this way, when Zodome is characterized, and he does get more single focus than she does, she gets a little bit of filling in by proxy, because we assume a certain mirroring in their behavior. We expect it. It's a trope. Now, she is more than just that pattern, but she does benefit from it. Like I mentioned, she is most often characterized along with Zorame, which I'll talk about more in a moment. She also plays off the other girls especially. She and Kokoro knew each other in Garden, and together are our most girly girls. 
They hang out the most, they play together at the beach, they gush over the inner city of the plantation together, and so on. And yet, they diverge in key moments to show that they are ideologically dissimilar. Miku is the main instigator of the boys versus girls dividing of Mistletane, while Kokoro is tepid about it from the beginning, and is the first to speak out against it. This doesn't make Miku rethink her position, but makes her double down on her reaction, deciding to sequester herself away from the rest of the girls as well. As Kokoro's knowledge of childbirth and interest in Mitsuru lead her toward questioning authority that rules them, Kokoro is still relieved that Papa hadn't forgotten them in episode 17. She was beside herself with worry. Even at the very end, when Kokoro becomes the shining example of maternity for the new world, Miku appears to never have had children at all. She plays off of Ichigo and Zero Two as well, but in a far more confrontational way. She is competitive with Ichigo at first, obstinate about Ichigo being their leader, and glad to challenge her during the test trial. She calls her out for her behavior during episode 9 when Goto is trapped inside the Klaxosaur. Yet, at some point, she defers to her leadership, and while they are never portrayed as friends in the same way she is with Kokoro, the infighting ceases about midway through. She even assents to being Hiro's guard during the time that Ichigo is trying to keep him and Zero Two apart. It's hard to point to a single moment where it changed, but I think it might be from Ichigo's efforts to rescue Goto, especially when she fusses at him for not leaning on her. Likewise, Miku starts off hostile to Zero Two, saying that she isn't a human because of her horns and eager to gossip about her with the other girls. This has probably not helped at all when Zorome tries to make overtures at Zero Two as his own partner. Miku's insecurity compared to Ichigo is probably at work here as well, as Zero Two is obviously in another league from the rest of them. Zero Two's general indifference to the boys versus girls fight wins her no points with Miku either. But she does come around. She is complimentary of Zero Two's shift in behavior during the month they were alone in Mistletane. What's more, Miku is the one who makes the floral headband for Zero Two that we see during episode 17, which is a callback to a floral crown she made for Kokoro in their time at Garden. Now, Miku and Zorome both are accepting of Papa's rule and generally are the last to question the authority over them. But Miku loses this faith once the society affects her friends. The crashed wedding is the watershed moment. She becomes a champion for Kokoro's own ideals of leaving something for the future and fighting for their own lives. She will gladly join the others to aid Zero Two when she tries to get to Hero and Star Entity, and then again when trying to get Hero to Zero Two in space. Miku's purpose and drive shift less out of ideology and more out of loyalty to her friends, even those she started out hostile toward. Now, her relationship with Zorome is an oddity in the series, as they are still contentious and pretty similar at the very end as they are throughout most of the work. Yet, this is not actual animosity between them. Loyalty means a lot to Miku, as even when Zorome screws up and gets her knocked out in episode 3, she dismisses his apology. They're partners, that's what actually matters. But she is resistant to the idea of attraction between them, covering it with antagonizing him or pretending indifference throughout. She talks up the leader of Squad 26 and makes comments about Nine Alpha when they meet him as well, both in front of Zorome. And while she makes a lot of waves about being ogled by the boys in Episode 8, by the end she is bashfully giving Zorome permission to do so at least a little bit. Episode 10 is probably the best example. After Zorome has been missing all day, they get the news that he's found. The person most visibly relieved is Miku, 
But her next reaction is to demand that he be punished for making them worry. But when he is cleaning the bathrooms, owing to that punishment, she comes to harass him. She missed him. And even confrontational time together is something she prefers over leaving him alone. She and Zotome probably influenced each other's relationship to the squad and to Papa. And while he might be responsible for her trusting the adults more than most, she probably was influential in swaying him the other way when she calls him out in episode 19. At the end, we see that she is involved in teaching the children. And I think this is also because of Zotome. But to explain that, we need to talk about him next. Like mentioned, Zotome gets a little more focus than Miku, and so I won't restate the stuff in her section for him uh, that we covered. He also starts out competitive, especially against Hiro, very nearly coming to blows over his insistence that Hiro didn't really pilot before him. He then leaps on the chance to challenge Hiro in the mock battle. But this isn't necessarily about a grudge against Hiro himself. Rather, Hiro has the lowest number out of the guys, and so should have the most potential. Proving himself more capable than Hiro sets Zotome up to argue that he is the best pilot among them. This is just why he will propose partnering with Zero Two as well. He wants to be the best because what he really craves is praise and recognition from Papa and the adults. It's not actually about besting Hiro. His motivation is not beating someone specific like Miku's was. This is easy to see during the lead up to the target beta fight when the squad is sore about their treatment from the 26ers. Zotome is less concerned about the actual Klaxosaur fight than he is about Squad 26 getting all of the glory. After Hiro and Zero Two prove critical to their victory, Zotome isn't standoffish to Hiro at all. In fact, he seems surprised that Hiro is aloof during the beach episode and asks him rhetorically if they aren't teammates. That same conversation is one of the many examples of Zotome idolizing the adults and admitting that he craves their praise. His purpose is to gain recognition and get to become an adult one day, something he reveals during his questioning of Squad 26 in Episode 5. He doesn't notice, of course, but we recognize then that something about his request is probably impossible. Where Zotome really comes into focus is, unsurprisingly, the episode in which he's the main character. After his curiosity gets him stranded in the home of an adult for a day, he gets to see just how his heroes live their lives. Though he starts out excited and curious, the more he learns, the more his enthusiasm wanes. Finally, it becomes a kind of sorrow, and he finds himself unexpectedly crying. When he tries to explain, he says that she felt really familiar to him. He says he has always felt like someone had been watching over him, there to protect him, and there are flashes back to his childhood and garden. When you combine this with his constant loyalty to Papa, I think the thing that Zotome wants is a parent an authority figure that is personal for him. Someone who, in his words, is gentle and kind, like they're always there to protect him. He's a lonely orphan boy who wants a mom or dad, but doesn't even understand those concepts. And so he idolizes the adults and their world. He craves it. Being the best and recognized isn't because his purpose is to his duty. It's because his purpose is to be accepted and adopted and made to feel like a welcome child. When the pressure of the squad finally gets to Zotome, and he dares ask Papa about becoming an adult, he loses his purpose, and we can see how downcast he is. For the first time ever in the next episode, he looks away from Papa and the inspirational speech that he usually revels in. After Verm is revealed and driven away, Zotome commits himself to the squad's goal of rebuilding, and continues thus all the way into the future. 
Now, this is why I think Miku was following Zotome's lead in becoming a teacher, rather than the other way around. From the brief interaction we see, it seems he has no problem getting along with children, and might even be a favorite. I imagine he works at that on purpose. See, I think Zotome becomes an educator to be the kind of gentle and protective authority figure that he himself never had. He was always looking for someone to treat as a parent and role model, and never really found it. Should a child come up in the future that is in the same predicament, Zotome will be positioned to take on that role. He'll know exactly how much it means. So Futoshi is next. His characterization was fairly absent beyond fat guy likes food until things fell apart with Kokoro. That whole affair strikes me so much as a young boy being treated nicely by a pretty girl while not yet having the life experience to realize that the only thing this means is that she is nice to you. Our brief look at his recollection of Garden suggests that he was a sad and perhaps lonely boy. We know thanks to Zotome's constant teasing that being overweight carries stigma in this world just like in our own. I don't think it's a leap to assume that Fatoshi may have had few friends, and even fewer girlfriends. Being paired with Kokoro must have been quite the surprise. I even guessed in the first episode, before we knew very much, that partners might be opposites on purpose, as it was clear that she was meant to seem very put together, and him not so much. Turns out our original partnerships were mostly similar temperaments, so that didn't pan out, but the observation of being somewhat opposite still holds. Kokoro is what we would cynically call out of his league. But she's a sweetheart and none of them know anything about relationships or attraction or sexuality or any of that. Once puberty is allowed to descend, it's little surprised he would crush on his kind and beautiful partner, leaving aside the camaraderie they develop as co-pilots in battle. Since he wants to be kind to her in turn, we can forgive him for interpreting Kokoro's behavior as the same kind of emotion that he feels towards her. Little wonder he tries to extract the promise from her about them always staying partners. His purpose revolves not so much about piloting as piloting with Kokoro. Once she has an avenue to pursue the person who has actually caught her eye, though, the reality of the situation catches Fatoshi completely off guard. He feels all of the emotions, betrayal, sorrow, and anger, and yet still a desire to protect her. He doesn't lose his feelings right away, as they had wormed their way in deep. This confusion brings him into conflict with Mitsuru, one of the many moments of strife that romance caused for our squad. Again, their shared inexperience makes a mess of things, where he is alternately violent and distraught. It may have seemed by the midway point of the show that the creators meant for Fatoshi to be thoroughly pathetic. His personal crisis sets him up for even more failure after the Grand Crevasse battle. He already the most distressed he's probably ever been, he then has to face the prospect of being abandoned along with everyone else. The stress affects him physiologically, and he cannot seem to keep food down. Yet, he goes back to his normal coping mechanism. He doesn't want to cause problems for anyone else, and so hides it by continuing to eat normally. Even this he has trouble keeping up, and so tries to cover it by claiming dieting. Zotome will call him out at the dinner they make together, and yet even then he tries not to cause problems. He even tries to force himself to eat then and there when he sees how upset Zotome really is. However, this altercation brings down the facade, and everyone allows their true fears and worries about their situation to spill out. 
As I said at the time, this becomes an incredible moment of healing for the squad. Hero's speech at the end is where the entire idea of a life beyond piloting begins. It's the real defining moment of our squad transitioning from a team into a family. Into their shared vulnerability, the creators decide to have Fatoshi be the guy who likes food again and breaks the tension by saying, and now I'm hungry. While it seems like using his appetite as yet another joke, it's actually something far more important. This is one of the biggest moments of bonding between them in the series, and it lets Fatoshi get back some of his normalcy. You see? His worry and stress eases with the knowledge of the group he has around him. From this, Fatoshi emerges with new purpose. His protective and supportive instincts that were originally only for Kokoro are extended to the entire group. He hasn't lost his feelings toward her. In fact, he'll be pretty distressed when he finds out about her relationship with Mitsuru proceeding apace, but he instead becomes a supporter and a cheerleader. His pain stays fresh for a while, but it doesn't stop him from supporting them when they decide to marry. He even makes sure he contributes in a tangible way, and will be the only one who steps between them and the guards when the wedding is crashed. We discussed it before, too, but when given the chance to be her partner again thanks to the mind wipe, he insists on arranging it so that she and Mitsuru are together once again. He knows this is how family should work, and there's no way he wouldn't try to support them even now. Because of this, Mitsuru is the one left behind on Earth in the final battle, which leads to a pretty critical moment for the two of them. Finally, we see Fatoshi in the future. We discussed this in the walkthrough already, I know, but Kokoro and his pain at losing her was a major weakness for him in the middle of the story. Yet, he took this vulnerability and made it his inspiration. He went beyond the rest in trying to aid the two of them to be together. As an adult, he has done the same thing. His lifelong weakness and passion for food, he has turned into a strength. He isn't a guy who eats a lot of food. He's a guy who creates nourishment for the children of their new world. For their ever-growing family. So let's talk next about his final partner and the other characterization that was late in developing. Like her first partner, Ikuno is often inscrutable throughout the beginning of our show. But while Mitsuru is often caustic as a result of his defensive indifference, she is more withdrawn, rarely saying anything with emotional weight to it at all. Only in a few contentious exchanges with Mitsuru do we ever see anything like an opinion from her. Eventually, we will figure out that she is afflicted with unrequited love, just like half the rest. Unlike all the rest, though, there isn't a clear moment where we see her understand what she is feeling. In retrospect, she is watching Ichigo from the very first, and she may even know what it is Ichigo feels towards Hiro before Ichigo figures it out. She probably interacts with others in the squad the least out of everyone, and her standoffishness feels like far less of an act than Mitsuru's will turn out to be. For a while, her role in the show mostly consists of reacting to Mitsuru, expo-speak, or casting furtive glances at Ichigo. In the Boys vs. Girls episode, she's not really mad at Mitsuru, as evidenced by their makeup at the end. Rather, she's all for a situation that divides the boys away from them. Where Ikuno comes into focus for us is during preparation for the wedding. When the Nines had visited the previous episode, we saw a rare emotional outburst from her, striking Nine Alpha for his disparagement of gender. Differentiation between gender has been part of the larger discussion about individuality in the series, which is part of why Nine Alpha, in his role as Papa Mouthpiece, attacks the whole idea. 
As we discussed then, though, his tirade strays dangerously close to thoughts that Ikuno has had herself. She has long realized that she likes girls, while Ichigo likes guys, and so there is an extra layer of hopelessness of her situation compared to the others. Gender divides her from what she wants most. There is understandable temptation to wish it could vanish. And yet, when Ikuno does confess to Ichigo, she also realizes that their genders contribute to who they are. That neither Ichigo nor Ikuno would be the same person if they were male or genderless or something else. In this way, Ikuno's own internal conflict reflects the greater thematic pressure of the squad valuing their individuality in a society that wishes to eradicate it. Her choosing to value their distinction, despite how impossible it makes her desire, should be seen as Ikuno casting her vote for the side of individuality along with the rest. That scene goes the way it does because of the order in which our interpersonal dramas unfold. There is a cascade of confessions and understanding in the series, catalyzed by Hiro and Zero Two and the visibility of their relationship. Ikuno, as it happens, is the last person to confess how she feels, even though she was possibly the first person to understand herself. Nine Alpha's comments about gender brought the matter to a head for her, but the example of Mitsuru being open and honest with Kokoro was a stark contrast to the Mitsuru she partnered with. I have no doubt this would have influenced her. When she comes clean then, part of the reason it goes as well as it does is because Ichigo has also wrestled with her feelings, confessed and been confessed to, and can immediately empathize. Ichigo is prepared to immediately embrace her and persuade her to join the rest. Ikuno has spent a lot of time as an outsider in this group, but once she can articulate her feelings about gender and about Ichigo, and once Ichigo does not reject her as a person, her distance with the others is reduced. She is family just the same as the rest. Thus, she does not hesitate to put herself in danger to open a path for Ichigo and Goro to get Zero Two to Hiro, and thus do the others refuse to leave her there. Then we get to this episode. With the emphasis on fertility and bringing civilization back, one might think that Ikuno becomes thematically irrelevant. After all, didn't we have her failed pistol-to-pistol -pistol connection with Ichigo to drive this point home already? Yet, rather than shuffle her to the side, the creators instead put her front and center. Like Fatoshi, she turns her weakness to strength by pouring herself into combating the rapid aging that afflicts the parasites. This should not be seen as her chasing after immortality, just like the previous society. Rather, her efforts are to return them to the natural order and away from the artificial changes that made them age rapidly to begin with. She is a force of returning the world to a more natural state just as surely as the parasites who begin families. In fact, without her intervention, civilization might have been a non-starter, as we can see that some of the parasites end up being more aged than their actual years should suggest. Having children is not the only or most important way to contribute to humanity's resurgence. Indeed, she adopts a little of Hero and Zero Two's metaphorical role of passing knowledge and stories forward, as her research no doubt forms the nucleus of restarting scientific development for their civilization. And she does not end up alone either. Naomi seems to take to being her assistant right away, and the mirror representing one relationship seems to pass back into her hands. Hero and Zero Two ended up different from their squadmates, and yet this was no barrier to them being together. Ichigo and Naomi turn out to be no different in this respect. I is no hidden star for them either. Mitsuru starts paired with Ikuno, and as I said, they both maintain a facade of cool indifference. 
Mitsuru is far less reserved with his, though, grandstanding often in the early part of the series and showing a special belligerence towards Hiro. As it turns out, he has a secret just as surely as Ikuno does, a deep-seated feeling of betrayal that has affected his ability to create relationships with others. He copes by keeping a calculated distance between himself and the rest. Yet, he cannot ignore opportunities to tear Hiro down when they present themselves. Unlike Zorome, who competed with Hiro in hopes of elevating himself, Mitsuru competes with Hiro specifically because it is Hiro. He doesn't volunteer to partner with Zero Two because she's the best pistol. He wants to partner with her purely to prove superiority over Hiro head to head. Though it doesn't go as planned, he still gets back into the cockpit before he's probably ready. Can't very well best Hiro from a hospital bed. The story turns for him because he catches the eye of Kokoro. Hiro and Zero Two's story progress the way it did because of the influence each of them has on the other. It should not surprise us, then, that their mirror and Mitsuru and Kokoro have a similar impact on the way their characterizations advance. This means that a lot of what I talk about here in Mitsuru's section is also relevant to our understanding of Kokoro's journey, so we won't restate it when we get there. The first instance of him catching Kokoro's eye is in the excellent fifth episode, when Hiro's successful second piloting with Zero Two is being lauded by the rest. This causes Mitsuru to leave, something that Kokoro notices. He hides himself in the greenhouse, and while he's alone, his facade is down. He's distressed, and can't understand why Hiro can succeed where he can't. Yet when Kokoro shows up, he immediately puts the mask back on, and he rebuffs her attempts to help him or hear him out. But she's gotten his notice at this point at least. I had said long ago, originally in the comments for the seventh episode, that I thought Mitsuru might actually be the most sensitive of the guys. This very sensitivity is why he clings to his mask and lashes out at those who try to get through it. Even though Kokoro expressed concern toward him, he is caustic toward her a bit during the beach episode. And yet, he's the one who keeps track of her when she wanders away from the rest, able to intervene with the ceiling almost falls on her. There is a difference between what he is feeling and what he is doing or saying. Due to the boys versus girls fight and their indifference toward it, Mitsuru and Kokoro have their first real conversation. Keeping his pattern of saying one thing but meaning another, Mitsuru tells her that he comes to the greenhouse because it's a good place to be alone. But of course, he knows she shows up there. A complete absence of companionship is not what he really wants, despite what he says. This conversation also tells us that she is the one who cares after these plants, and has learned their names and meanings. She is a caretaker. She likes to look after growing things. It's no accident that the baby book makes an appearance in the scene, and that Mitsuru is the one to see it. This is the good type of foreshadowing that seems so obvious in hindsight. Anyway, it's not just her discussion of something she's passionate about that gets his attention here. It's also her admitting that she admires his courage in refusing to toe the line. Like a lot of our characters, Mitsuru's own characterization has moments of supporting the human qualities that are ideologically opposed to Ape's vision of society. That this is also admirable and attractive to Kokoro puts her on this ideological side as well. Mitsuru's pivot point comes, of course, because of Kokoro. It doesn't have anything to do with her specifically, as his crisis is about the forgotten promise from Hiro and the way it wrecked his ability to trust others. When he has a relapse of child fever, it recalls that moment of apparent betrayal in his youth. Ikono actually tries to get him to confront the issue during the partner shuffle discussion, causing another rare outburst. 
as Yukuno says, this suits him much better than acting all cool and aloof. Yet what can heal him is not more confrontation, but something more like understanding. We talked about it quite a lot back in our episode 11 rundown, so we won't completely rehash here, but Kokoro's willingness to make herself vulnerable and to also admit that she is a promise breaker herself helps Mitsuru feel much less like an outsider. Making some kind of peace with his pain, even without resolving the situation with Hiro, is a first step on the way up. Thus, even though he is confused by Kokoro's choice early on and focuses on the trouble it causes him with Fatoshi, after their moment in the cockpit, he has accepted the situation and promises to look after her. So Mitsuru's hidden trust issues can begin to heal once he has someone who shows him complete trust. Believing oneself capable of being trusted puts the lie to the idea that no one should trust anyone else. It is similar to how being loved makes it possible for one to love others. This leads to two changes for Mitsuru. One is that he stops being so hostile to Hiro, which eventually lets them have a heart-to-heart -heart after Kokoro's advances surprise him. The other is that he starts to let his sensitive nature show through. He begins to be the boy he was in his youth again. Reflecting this, he has Kokoro cut his hair. This is not only a symbol of a new start to one's life, but the haircut itself recalls the younger and more expressive version of himself. Their romance proceeds to change him further, until he becomes someone happy and engaged with the rest, unashamed to blush in front of others at the idea of their wedding. Now, the memory wipe makes both of their character journeys a little bit different. I expressed before that I hated there wasn't enough time to let them grow toward each other again with the same measured pace. However, it seems that though the wipe took away his memories and feelings for Kokoro, they did not take away the fact that he had dealt with his trust issues. Because of this, once they are around each other again for any length of time, the natural attraction begins again. The barrier that kept him from trusting and growing close to others doesn't exist anymore, and his affection manifests as concern for her. This is just the role she played for him during their first few encounters. Once he is able to articulate that it is her he wants as a purpose, desire and not fate, both of them more fully understand who he is. His showing of vulnerability gets through to her in the same way hers did for him in the past. Thus are they positioned to be the parents to the first child. Thus is he deserving of inheriting the name of Papa. Not the Papa who rules the world, but the Papa who helps begin a new one. And so Mitsuru's long journey is from a sensitive boy who idolized Hiro to a sensitive man who takes up Hiro's mantle. They give the first name to the first child, ensuring that humanizing and empathetic pattern Hiro first installed in him will continue into the far future. Like Mitsuru, Kokoro's journey is hard to explain without telling part of her lover's journey as well. We will try not to restate too much. She began, as we said, with a coping mechanism of niceness, of avoiding confrontation. While this makes her well-loved among the squad, it also prevents her at times from acting as she really wants. This is first clear during the Boys vs. Girls episode, where she is unable to speak up against what they are doing at several points. It's not until after her encounter with Mitsuru that she is able to square herself to the challenge of disagreeing with the others. Part of what motivates her as well, though, is her reading of the maternity book. Understanding that there is a purpose to having boys and girls beyond their role as pilots changes the stakes in that fight for her. Combining this understanding of reproduction with her own attraction to Mitsuru 
Kokoro will eventually be motivated to break her non-confrontational demeanor again when the partner shuffle rolls around. She still wants to avoid conflict by default, and so agrees to Fatoshi's promise earlier and can't be honest with him when during the individual conversations. But when Ikuno wants to try piloting with Ichigo, and Mitsuru is suddenly available, she is willing to go against her nature to take that chance. As terrible as it is for Fatoshi in the moment, and as disagreeable as it is to break a promise, this is actually positive progress for her character, to risk backlash in pursuit of something she really wants. She admired Mitsuru for not towing the line, and little by little, she is willing to do the same. During the time that the squad is left alone, her feelings for Mitsuru and purpose of wanting a child are allowed to grow quite strong. Emboldened by the success of risking confrontation before, she becomes the aggressor in their relationship, first kissing him and then later beginning to undress him. However, his hesitation confuses her. After the confrontation with the Nines and then with Nana, Kokoro is ready to abandon the whole idea. When Mitsuru seeks her out, she apologizes for getting him involved, for trying to force him. She refuses to believe him when he says that she wasn't forcing him. She doesn't want him to go along with it in the same way that she used to go along with things. She made a promise to Fatoshi she didn't mean. She isn't going to be on the receiving end of that. Mitsuru has to prove that he really wants her, above all other options, not just as the default option. He does, of course, and they get their brief span of happiness. After the memory wipe, though, she lost the two things that drove her to defy her society, that allowed her to refuse to toe the line. She lost her memory of wanting a child, and her memory of the romance with Mitsuru. Small wonder she defaults back to their original purpose. Small wonder she stops thinking about a future. The result is that even though most of the squad goes through some crisis of purpose earlier in the series, her crisis comes nearly at the end. When they discover she is pregnant, she cannot live for fighting anymore. She is adrift. As we discussed last time, this is why she latches so strongly onto the minor role of looking after Zero Two's body. She's looking for something to throw herself into, to give her existence some meaning. The child inside her is too abstract and frighteningly unknown. Even the feelings for Mitsuru that have no doubt begun to surface are a confusing mystery. And so, just as before, Mitsuru can't get through to her at first. She is not willing to be wanted because of some idea of responsibility. She can't reconstruct her purpose for so flimsy a reason. Mitsuru has to make clear that she is his ideal. She's not plan B. She's not even plan A. She's just the plan. There is nothing else he wants. Her and the child or a bust. And to convince her, he has to be honest and vulnerable. This is not something the original Mitsuru could have done. That aloof and distant guy from the first half of the series could never have succeeded in this moment. And that means that Kokoro's eventual salvation came from a set of events that she herself set in motion. Her own nurturing and kind nature eventually looped back to save her in turn. Yet one more way in which these two reflect Hiro and Zero Two. Once she and Mitsuru are together once more, I imagine a lot of her apprehension about being pregnant begins to disperse. As I mentioned, this entire last episode sees her incredibly serene and satisfied. She has new purpose, and it's within her grasp. Unsurprising that she draws the attention of so many other girls who are just beginning to exercise their own right to choose a future for themselves. She isn't just some kind of maternal ideal, she is confident and at peace in the role. 
It's hard to say the last time someone in this universe truly bore the name of Mama, but Kokoro earned it. So, our friend Gobro. Goro got a lot of his characterization earlier in the series, and then stepped aside later on for the developing story between Mitsuru and Kokoro to take up more of the stage. Of the squad, I think he and Miku probably have the most straightforward characterizations. The series isn't very old before you understand what to expect from each of them. Now, Goto and Ichigo both often retreat into responsibility, squashing what they feel in the moment for the sake of maintaining a level head. This is not always a bad thing, and it is suitable to leadership, which is the role they naturally fall into. What is interesting about both of their cases is that even though they often wield authority or responsibility for their squad mates, they are not blindly loyal order takers from the authority above them. I think part of this is the influence of Hero in their lives. We saw that they were a trio throughout their youth, and even if they didn't challenge or question the world the way Hero did, it's reasonable to expect that this habit has rubbed off on them. I actually think each of them inherits part of Hiro's personality after he has his memories wiped. Ichigo takes over his role of natural leadership, while Goto takes over his role of curiosity, though the latter won't fully manifest until Hiro is gone from the story. Now, we'll eventually learn that Goto has been carrying the torch for Ichigo since they were very young, and yet he knew even then that Ichigo only had eyes for Hiro. Despite this, despite living in Hiro's shadow for almost the entire show, Goto is not bitter. He doesn't resent or compete with Hiro the way Zorome or Mitsuru do. Instead, he seems to internalize the idea of being a sidekick, both to Ichigo and Hiro, and builds an identity out of supporting the two of them especially. He supports Ichigo and Hiro during moments when they need someone to talk to, or need someone to cover for them, or someone to snap them out of it. Much like Kokoro's niceness, this is not some inherently bad thing. In fact, Goto is possibly the most decent character in the entire cast. But like Kokoro, this means he often finds himself acting or speaking in a way that puts his own well-being second. This means not hesitating to encourage Hiro to pilot with Ichigo. It means keeping Hiro's secret when Goto knows about the blue heart. And of course, it means thinking of blowing himself up to spare the others from the risk. Supporting others is all well and good, but if you never look after your own welfare, eventually that will cause problems for others. Caring about other people is commendable, but those people often care about you as well. So it is that Goto traps himself inside a Klaxosaur out of an instinct to protect Ichigo. Even despite his predicament, the first thing he asks after is Ichigo's welfare, and when she contacts him later, his initial reaction is not relief that he may be rescued, but relief that she has regained consciousness. Now, even though that episode was about Goto primarily, it characterizes Ichigo a lot as well. She has not failed to notice the self-sacrificing tendency of Goto's, and it makes her angry. He might think nothing of spending his life for her sake, but she doesn't think of his life as nothing. Goto has internalized the idea of being a support structure for others for so long that he's forgotten that he's someone worth supporting as well, that he doesn't have to try to face his problems on his own. He originally loved Ichigo for teaching him that, and yet he still defaults to playing second fiddle. Somehow he cannot think of himself as being as valuable as he thinks of others. This then becomes yet another example in the series of one squadmate helping another overcome their personal crisis. The links Ichigo goes to in order to rescue him, putting herself in great danger mind, 
help Goto realize he is just as worth supporting and protecting as she is to him. Inspired by this, as well as his own regrets when he thought he was staring down death, Goto is able to confess how he feels to Ichigo. It's selfish and possibly might upset Ichigo, and he knows very well how she feels about Hiro. He does it anyway, and completes the process of giving her a gift that was many years in the making. From here on, Goto has less difficulty contradicting Ichigo or Hiro when he finds himself in disagreement. He no longer hesitates so much to express what he feels. Goto sides with Zero Two when Ichigo is trying to keep them apart in episode 14. He defies Ichigo when she tries to remove Hiro from the battlefield during episode 15, standing aside so that Hiro can pilot in his place. He's willing to come to blows with Hiro when his own frustration with him and their situation reaches the boiling point. He pursues his own desire of exploring the world and chasing discovery at the end. And of course, he makes what he really wants unmistakably plain. It takes some time, but he gets it. And now to Ichigo. Ah, Ichigo. What a mix of strength and vulnerability. Only Hero and Zero Two get more development, and I would be hard pressed to argue that they are more complex than she is. If you've watched me all along, you know I have been high on Ichigo almost from the beginning. She constantly shows good leadership judgment, and like Goto, can put aside what she really wants or feels in order to lead. However, she is far more tempestuous than Goto. No one would confuse her for a parasite that has gone through emotional indoctrination. She is a mass of conflicting traits. Part of her is capable of standing her ground against Zero Two and Nine Alpha, and part of her still asks for stuffed animals each year. She actually has a lower number than Hero, but never boasts or attaches her identity to her performance. She has no problem getting angry and even violent when one of her squad is in danger, yet tries to suppress her emotions when they concern herself. And she doesn't always succeed. If we look at her story, it's not hard to understand why she spends so much of the series conflicted. She has adored Hero forever. He named her. He shared the things he read with her. He gave her gifts. He spoke to her of a future in which they left Garden and looked for a hidden star. But he was already her star. Through sheer luck, they were assigned to the same squad, and yet before the next stage of their lives can begin, he is starting to slip away. His failure with Naomi unmans him, and he is willing to be transferred away, probably forever. He ignores her attempts to rouse him. The startup ceremony that should be their moment of triumph is nothing of the sort for her. Hiro isn't there. Hiro might be leaving any moment. And when they do begin the startup, Ichigo and Goto instead come face to face with death. Then she is saved by Zero Two. And when she takes Hiro into Strelizia, she stops Hiro from leaving Ichigo's life as well. Twice over should Ichigo be thankful to her. And she is. But Zero Two comes after Hiro. And unthinkably, Hiro reciprocates. When Ichigo and Hiro can't connect, and there are no sparks between them when they kiss, Ichigo must feel like what she wants is impossibly far away. All of this would have been bad enough. But Zero Two is not just a new partner, she's the partner killer. She's not just a threat to Hiro's heart, she's a threat to his life. I talked in episode 14 about fundamental flaws of these three, and I said that Ichigo's is a blind spot in her judgment wherever Hiro is concerned. Her problem is that from moment to moment, she has trouble determining whether she should relate to Hiro as his squad leader, his childhood friend, or as a potential lover. This is why she will do things like defend Hiro's decision to the group, and will tell Hiro that she won't try to stop him again, but then she will turn right around and confront Zero Two instead. 
or she will know she needs to say something to him as leader and then collapse and resolve when it comes time to do so. And in spite of herself, she will completely disintegrate when she thinks Hero has died. He lives, but that also means that Hero and Zero Two are officially partnered and are closer than ever. This helps make her own feelings clear to her, and she even gets up the courage to confess to him, only to have the moment upended. All of that is quite the ordeal, no? And this without ever having been taught how to deal with these feelings, with having very little autonomy to solve her own problems, and while having the responsibility to lead the squad through life and death encounters. The fact that she succeeds as often as she does should be commendable, even before we consider things like her rescue of Goto or her prowess on the battlefield. And yet she has caused to question her judgment time and again. She slowly accepts Zero Two as part of the squad, despite how much it must gall her, even defending her against the Nines. Yet Zero Two proves to be just the dangerous element she fears, very nearly draining Hero's life before realizing the truth of things. Ichigo is done playing nice at that point. She's going to be the squad leader only and play hardball for Hero's own good. The others eventually persuade her to let Zero Two see Hero, and that ends in disaster as well. Surely Hero can see the light now, and yet he still would chase after Zero Two. Ichigo can't convince him as squad leader or as friend, and so in a terrible moment, she tries to convince him as a potential lover. There is no way this is the confession she wanted to give, but why should she trust her judgment at this point? Anything to do with Hiro only confuses her, upsets her, and turns out the wrong way. But it doesn't matter, right? Zero Two is gone now. The squad can rebuild. Hiro can rebuild. She'll do whatever it takes to help him pilot again, to stay a part of their lives. And then that little punk comes out to the battlefield in a freaking training unit. It's a wonder she doesn't just smush him right there. But then, the more assertive side of Goto that she herself helped foster turns the tables on her, and she is stuck delivering Hiro to the very person she just went through hell to keep him from. Now, while Ichigo should have guessed that something unusually strong drove Hiro, and that maybe there was never going to be anything she could do about it, we could perhaps forgive her for thinking that Hiro's own judgment needed some work. If you retold the first half of the story from Ichigo's perspective, never knowing what goes on between Hiro and Zero Two, um, or knowing anything about their past, then she would not look like someone meddling between them, but a heroic friend trying to save her childhood crush from a man-eater. What turns the story for Ichigo is connecting to Hiro. Seeing Zero Two being foremost on his mind, seeing Zero Two from Hiro's perspective, in that moment, Ichigo understands. She never had a chance. She could chase Hiro forever, and he would always stay off somewhere in the distance. He's as far away as the stars. But seeing things from his perspective also helps her understand. That's the basic idea of empathy again, right? And so she delivers him begrudgingly. When the two of them connect and declare their love moments later, she is able to smile for them and yet cry for herself. I suppose we could understand if Ichigo wanted to wash her hands of Hiro and Zero Two at this point, yet we will later see a flashback to the moment after that fight. When no one else knew what to do or say, it was Ichigo who crossed the distance to try to make peace. Nobody on the squad had a better reason to not welcome Zero Two or to try to understand, but she does. And when Zero Two shrinks from her, flinches, and turns her eyes away, Ichigo doesn't exult. She doesn't delight in satisfaction at Zero Two's sorry state. She doesn't see a rival brought low or someone getting what they deserved. She sees a girl in pain and confusion, 
a girl expecting to be reproached or punished or simply rejected, a girl that is part of her squad. And so Ichigo comforts her, shows humanity to her. Now Ichigo does not suddenly stop loving Hiro. Attraction is not something you can turn off like a switch. But from this point on, Zero Two is never again her enemy or obstacle. Never again does Ichigo show poor judgment because of Hiro. Instead, only her good sides seem to prevail from hereafter. She listens and helps Hikuno, ever so understanding of her plight. She rallies the squad when Verm's betrayal leaves everyone else adrift on the battlefield. She goes through peril and pain to get Zero Two to Hiro. She shoulders the responsibility of organizing humanity itself in the aftermath, even eventually collapsing from the effort, and yet still finds the emotional energy to comfort both Hiro and Goto. Heck, she's even the one that makes Hiro and Zero Two promise to return to Earth, no matter how long it takes. Hiro and Zero Two deserve their starring role, no mistake, but I think it's appropriate that Ichigo does most of the narrating for the final episode. She ends up being something of the unsung heroine, and yet I think she's okay with that. Glory never mattered to her, just seeing things through and taking care of the people she cared about. She even seems to have spent years helping to build them all a home before deciding to pursue a little happiness of her own, before deciding that she, too, is ready to be someone's wings. Finally, Hero and Zero Two. Empathy and instinct. We aren't going to retell their journey here. To do that would be to retell the entirety of Darling in the Franks. It is rare indeed to have a story in which characterizations are so indivisible from narrative and in which two different characterizations are so indivisible from each other. It is impossible to understand Hero or Zero Two in isolation, nor is it entirely possible to separate the rest of the cast from them. Nearly every character of note is influenced by them in one way or another by the end. And, owing to their final enshrinement in legend, every human from now on will bear some small trace of their story across their own. In fact, the key roles our squad adopts for the new society may have had their genesis in our main couple's example. Goro seems to adopt Hiro's curiosity, bringing exploration to their new world. Ichigo watched Hiro's natural leadership before ever taking a stab at it herself. Hiro read about medicine and science, and these are the roles that Ikuno and then Naomi pursue. The idea of cooking for themselves was suggested by Zero Two, and Fatoshi would find his purpose there. Hiro was always sharing knowledge and books in his youth, and that sharing is the foundation of education. And, of course, their mirrors carry on their example of restoring fertility and exalting the idea of love. The wealth of knowledge and shared understanding that is their legacy means that even though they die first, they also live the longest. In lieu of tracing their journey then, I just wanted to point out how utterly entwined were their paths and how essential their love. You could argue that either one of them is the actual protagonist of the story. Each of their desires and goals drive them in different ways at different parts, waxing and waning in tune with what the other is going through. Each of them moves the story, and neither does so fully on their own. What's more, their tale isn't a game of chance, a series of coincidences to bring them together. Hero actively broke that window. Zero Two worked for years to become human. And, if I'm right, they were brought together again because of how their actions inspired another. The only reason their story doesn't end with Hero dying in Episode 6 is because he had some of her blood in him. But that wasn't luck. He didn't accidentally contaminate. 
His empathy, that most humanizing of all attributes, his empathy made him see a girl with red skin and horns and see her as an equal. He saw blue blood and didn't pull away because of the blueness, but leaned forward because it was another person in pain. Who could guess that such a gesture would lead to saving the world? Verum would eradicate all differences between people. That is their solution to the friction that being different can cause. But Hero and Zero Two love each other in spite of this, maybe even because of it. Their story only works because of their differences, their essential individuality. And the series does not downplay the problems that being different can cause. Each makes mistakes. Each comes into conflict with the other. Just as they are not brought together arbitrarily, they are not kept apart arbitrarily. Instead, their own flaws and insecurities and conflicting purpose come between them and perfect happiness. And in fact, the story has choose that whole idea of perfect happiness. There is no fairy tale end, no happily ever after that pretends two people won't have missteps and confrontation. But their love lasts because they don't give up at the first sign of trouble. One rises to be strong when the other is weak. When one pulls away, the other chases after. Despite the prominence of the Beast and Prince tale, Hero and Zero Two's romance is not some storybook affair. The story doesn't end with them getting together, as so many romances do. It begins with them finding each other. Their struggle isn't to get together, neither in their time at Garden nor their time at Mistletane. Their struggle in both cases is to stay together. They believe what they have is worth fighting for. You know, there is a lot of disparagement toward the idea of the power of love. And I confess that when it is portrayed like a superpower, it can be uninspired. It's lazy to treat love as though it is some mystical, conflict-resolving force that overcomes impossible obstacles or foes. And worse than that, such writing misses the entire point. See, power of love shows up so much because love is accessible. It's not a magic ring or a giant robot or psychic abilities. It shouldn't be treated like some fantastical and rare thing. Love isn't powerful because it makes you stronger, faster, smarter. Love is powerful because of the extraordinary things people are willing to do if it's for someone they love. Beyond reason or rationale, beyond any instinct for self-preservation. One thing that should be clear from our series is how important purpose is to the characters. With one they thrive, and without one they flounder. We saw them chase these purposes, fulfill them, abandon them, have them taken away, and replace them with new. But love is a purpose that has no victory condition. No measurable end, no incremental progress. Love isn't a destination. It's something you reach out and grab and hope to never let go. And so making it act like magic is missing the point. Ending when the couple finds each other and saying happily ever after is missing the point. The greatness is only just beginning then. And it's a greatness that I can reach for, that you can reach for. There's a reason love stories inspire us, that a story like Hero and Zero Twos can inspire us. I can't punch through a wall or turn invisible or fight vampires or mutants. I can't pilot Franks or fight off Vern. I can barely fight my editing computer. I will never be the hero in a book or on TV, but I can reach out and love someone. You can reach out and love someone. That's how we can be extraordinary. Well, it's been fun and part of me is sad to see it finish. I'm going to conclude in a moment by addressing the epilogue of the series. 
I think it is appropriate that Hero and Zero Two get to end their own tale. I just want to say first that I appreciate everyone who has taken this journey with me. There's like six times as many of you as when the series started, and I'm really glad you found us. Whether you loved or hated Darling the Franks, I hope you found something of value in all this. When one story ends, though, another begins. Death and rebirth. Soon enough, we'll know which stories we are watching next. Until then, thanks for everything. Now, let's talk about that epilogue. Back in episode 18, we realized we had a change in the future we thought we were heading toward. This whole series opens with two images from Zero Two's mind. Young her under the mistletoe, and older her under cherry trees. Because we had never seen her in Squad 13's civilian clothing, we thought perhaps the second scene was a future they were still heading toward. It was still a possibility for the story's final destination. Once we see that this scene takes place on the day of the wedding, we know that some other future is in store, but it leaves us wondering, what is the significance of those two scenes such that they should be the opening moments of the show? We learned that the moment under the mistletoe was the final moment of happiness for young Hero in Zero Two. We wondered then, with some dread, if this moment before the wedding was then the final moment of happiness for the grown Hero in Zero Two. Sure enough, they are always under some conflict and tension from here on, separating from each other at times, and finally from everyone else entirely. And so we speculated, perhaps this show will end with yet a third scene under a tree to match the two that opened it. The question then is, what kind of tree will it be? The one in winter, or the one in spring? Well, not only is it the one in spring, it seems to have sprung directly from Zero Two, or perhaps even both of them, considering their connection. The sapling left in place of her was a rebirth directly from their shared death. And yet, not a single rebirth, but a rebirth every year thereafter. For decades and decades, the blossoms return and fade away again, as transient as the lives of the people that come to see them whenever they burst free, each with their own reason to find themselves there, each with their own stories. Here's the thing about stories. Each of us lives inside one that constantly changes. Your life is just a story that your mind is telling you. Yet we are drawn to the tales told by others and their timeless nature. The book that captivated or inspired us in our youth will still be there well into our later years, and we find that comforting. I've heard it said that the main difference between fiction and real life is that fiction has to make sense. Things don't always go the way we expect in our lives. Jobs end, relationships end, we lose touch, or our friends, or our health, or our hope. We find ways to disappoint ourselves and others. But the characters and stories are safe, their tale is over, their trials complete. They are never going to change their mind about us, grow ill unexpectedly, disappoint us, make us feel rotten or unwanted. The worlds they inhabit don't fade, but are as fresh as they were when we first encountered them. Even if our experience is different each time we return, the stories remain free from the chaotic swirls of our own lives. They're timeless. They outlive us just as surely as the tale of Hero and Zero Two in this world lived far past the memory of the others. Yet often at story's end, we find ourselves wishing for it to go on. A bit more time in this world we have visited, another moment with our traveling companions. By their nature, stories begin and end. And by our nature, we still wish for just a little more. And so, at long last, 
our wayward souls make their way home. It is perhaps a little ambiguous whether we are to interpret this as reincarnation. Reincarnation as a concept is pretty consistent with the idea of death and rebirth, at least. It's not hard to see why it's a persistent idea when one considers the natural world. Things don't end or begin so much as change. They transform. The world goes in circles and in cycles, life to death and all that's in between. Sometimes, even the death of just two might give life to the many. Winter into spring. Whether it is the two of them truly reborn or not, we at least are meant to understand how very similar these two children are, and not just in their physical resemblance. It's a recreation of Hero and Zero Two's last moments under the mistletoe at Garden. The boy reads under the tree. In fact, their very picture book. The girl with the pink hair trips and falls before him. She already has skinned knees, much like Zero Two did so long ago, an act that led to Hero taking in her blood and everything that changed about their tale. This girl's fall seems like it might alter these two lives as well. When she tumbles, two pieces of candy spill from her purse, round, hard candy like the two Hero had long ago. It seems he bears the book this time, and she the sweets. Of significance is her asking who he is. For one, it means that the humanizing act of naming carried into the future, and so strangers first share this vital information about themselves with others to make each of them less distant. It is also a further mirror of the scene when Hero first read the book, as that was when he said the word darling to her, giving her his name as he does now. It's practically the same scene. No, no, that's not right. The first scene was in winter, with them cold and afraid, and the only life around them was the faint promise from the mistletoe above. This tree, here in spring, this is from a new world entire. It is that faint promise made real, made whole. And I'm wrong about the book, too. It's not the same book. We can see that he's on the very last page when the girl runs up, that final changed page that the squad finished for them in the same way that they finished this world for them. When young Hero read the original book in his youth, he said to Zero Two, sorry, I was just thinking how sad this story is. But now, now it can be something else. <laughs>